Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues Continues. The No Miki Show Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. It is Wednesday, September 29th. Oh, how quickly this year has gone by. Uh, pandemic time, I guess is what you want to call it. Um, we're very excited because this show is, you know, a typical Wednesday show. Uh, we're doing a heavy focus in the first half of the show on the military industrial complex, on how much money, how many lives have been lost since 9-11 based on what is very clearly a failed strategy of spending like every dollar that we produce in this country uh, on wars. And we're going to be talking to two uh, great reporters who've been covering this in the last few weeks, have come out with great pieces on the cost, the, the, the lives and the, the financial cost of the wars that we and our national security, um, how much money we put in. We have Murtaza Hussein and Luke Savage on to join us uh, for the first half. And the second half is all about, mostly about this big bill, the most important bill probably in two generations, at least for the two future generations. Uh, that is, of course, this infrastructure bill that is in major debate right now. Uh, the progressives and other Democrats are in a stalemate, it seems, with some obstructionists who call themselves centrists, but I would disagree. Uh, we're going to be talking about that with Jordan Zacharin and Julia Doubleday, as well as this media company called Ozzy. Ozzy, I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, they put themselves out as being, they purported themselves as being, you know, this huge uh, company, media company that represented all millennials. They had conferences and concerts. They were on billboards, on buses in New York City, except I personally didn't really know anybody who read Ozzy or watched Ozzy. I don't really know. Well, it turns out it was a big house of cards. And to me, uh, I believe it is just an emblem of a lot of these tech startups that emerged, media companies and other tech startups that emerged in you know, the late 2000s, the Obama years, uh, and were built off of you know, early investors. And those investors didn't really care about results. They cared about money. So we're going to talk about that with our panel as well. But first, I want to make a little announcement. Um, last night, Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, we premiered our first live show. So we pre-tape uh, this show on Wednesdays and Fridays. It's a two-hour show uh, on Wednesday and Fridays. And of course, Fridays is our Fun Friday show. But we have uh, just cut a deal with this company called, the platform called Rockfin. And Rockfin, what their goal is, is to create a platform. Uh, they have, you know, just like YouTube. So it's politics, sports, entertainment, you know, all sorts of topics. Uh, but it their goal is to empower creators more. And I, you know, thought long and hard about whether or not we wanted to expand the show and have another version of the show. Um, talked about it with the team. And, you know, this is all happening at a time when a lot of these tech platforms have been tinkering with their algorithms. You know, we talk about it all the time. They demonetize so many shows for saying things uh, that are really challenging the establishment 
and they incentivize misinformation, engage in, you know, right-wing turns, um, engage in misogyny and sexism, you know, different forms of sexism, and of course, racism. And that's not healthy and that's not good for the movement. And, and we can see it in the numbers, I think, you know, whether there are left hosts that have been on this platform for 10 years or those who have joined in the last six months, they see that it is harder and harder for left hosts to sustain their audiences, to keep a budget going because the algorithms keep getting uh, messed up. And, and of course, you know, these algorithms are written by humans. They're not like some data operator thing. That's just like a glitch in the system. You know, it's systemic, but the system is created by humans. And those humans just happen to be white men who may or may not understand the complexities of human behavior. Now, the companies know. They know now because they've done internal investigations. There have been leaks. Uh, you know, just this last week, Facebook, there was a leak that was uh, uncovered that Facebook was very well aware of the, the, the problems in their algorithm and how Facebook incentivizes hate and misinformation and disincentivizes activism and community building and, and you know, positive affirmations and positive stories and news. And so, you know, these stories are coming up because a lot of these companies hired folks to examine their algorithms. Google famously, I'm sorry, we're on YouTube, but Google famously fired the person who uncovered the fact that the algorithm was racist and, bi and, and biased against women. And so, you know, this is why we decided we were going to expand our reach to Rockfin. Uh, we believe on our show and I know others who are hopefully going to be joining Rockfin as well, believe that we need to have a diversity of left opinions or those who put themselves out there as left uh, on all platforms. This is a really important time uh, in, in society, not just because we have an existential threat of, of climate change that is here, it needs to be dealt with and managed because it is here, it is not going away, it cannot be reversed. We have to figure out what to do now and that is reliant on our government structures, which means it's reliant on building coalitions, which means it's reliant on building votes and getting things passed like this bill on Thursday. And we believe on our show that the more we talk about the things that we can get done now and plan for the future and really understand how government works and share that with our audiences and talk about it with other hosts who are doing similar productive, uh, you know, analysis and having productive conversations with reporters and doing investigations, we believe the more of that needs to be done and less of the infighting because the infighting and the finger pointing, it's all a distraction to keep you away from doing the real work. Our lives, even their lives, everyone's life is on the line. Of course, those who are on the front lines are the most vulnerable and they don't have seats at the table. They don't have megaphones as large as some of these hosts. So I believe it is my duty with my megaphone to bring more voices on that don't have megaphones rather than using my megaphone to attack people. And so it's very, very important that we find as many spaces as possible to hopefully bring people onto our side so that we can build coalitions, so that we can get votes, so we can elect more progressives, so we can make sure our progressives are doing what they were elected to do.
so we can have deeper conversations about systemic issues and so that the audience and voters and activists are more informed. I learn with you. I learn as we bring our guests on. Every time I prepare for a show, I learn something. And that helps me as a citizen, it helps me as a host, and it helps me bring in more informed guests. Because this, to me, is a platform of information. This is not a platform to fight and build clicks. The only reason I even want clicks is so that we get more of these voices out there. So I'm really excited that we're joining the Rockfin community. Um, every Tuesday, Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, we're going to be doing a live show. We're going to start off on YouTube. I'm going to go on YouTube. I'm going to take your Q&As. So some of your Q&As, send them over tweets, DMs, whatever. Uh, Patreon, of course. And, um, and then we will be answering those over at Rockfin. Of course, if you're on Rockfin, you can do that there too. Uh, we have the, the, the link down there uh, in the banner, rockfin.com slash nomiki, N-O-M-I-K-I. And, uh, and to our patrons, I just want to reiterate how grateful we are to you. Our show sustains itself through platforms like this, through Patreon. Patreon has been so beneficial. And, you know, we didn't start with a big list. We didn't start with another show. I mean, I go on the majority report, but like, you know, we didn't start with shows giving us their lists and we didn't hire publicists like a lot of shows do. That's kind of the secret sauce. Uh, we didn't have that. We started our show, we have patrons who've kept us alive and that's how we do it. And we produce, you know, four or five hours of content a week, which is more than most shows on the left. And we do it on a really scrappy budget. And so it really has come down to with all these, these, these shifts in the algorithms, it's come down to our patrons. So I want to thank all of our patrons for joining. And for those of you um, who were patrons who may be facing tougher times, you know, feel free to reach out to us. We're happy to work something out as always. If you're not a patron, please join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. And again, Tuesday nights at 8 p.m., we're at Rockfin where we're doing live, a live show. Last night we had Steven Donziger on, who of course has been under house arrest for two years because he, uh, he represented indigenous communities in Ecuador who faced a horrible, horrible economic or economic uh, environmental disaster based on spills and negligence by Chevron, which bought Texaco. Uh, so it was Texaco and Chevron. And he actually won in court and Chevron refuses to pay. Uh, far less than, than, by the way, what the BP oil spill, uh, what BP had to, to, to pay. But, you know, they refused to pay. And not only that, they're so vindictive and they're so dirty, like of the dirty oil companies, they're the dirtiest. They decided that they were going to find a way to basically pay off uh, different folks and work with certain, you know, use the, the, the legal system that is deeply flawed in our country. But, you know, you can't find much better. Uh, to make sure that 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 Stephen was used as an example, and that Stephen was uh, essentially punished, and so they found a way to prosecute him on RICO charges, and uh, and of course the judge that is overseeing him has ties to Chevron. So this Friday, uh, Stephen is going to be sentenced. He has a sentencing hearing, I should say. Um, Friday in New York City in the Southern District at 500 Pearl Street at 8.30 a.m. They're doing a rally. I will be there. Uh, the rally will be outside of the court. And then uh, they're expecting folks from the rally to join the courtroom in support. 
uh, of Steve, Stephen because he is an emblem. This is sort of how big business is doing things today, at least in the Western world, at least in uh, you know the U.S., the U.K., places where they can't get away with doing what they used to do, uh, especially with a white man who you know is is white collar profession, meaning a lawyer and who's high profile. Um, I've seen this trend, you know, with politicians, with women in particular, where, uh, you know, they come in clean and their only way to punish them for speaking up is to just file a bunch of complaints and tie them up with legal fees and time. And it's 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 an old tactic they use in politics, but uh, they're now using it against people like Stephen, who's been very courageous. But he's not the only one. There are plenty of lawyers out there defending indigenous communities. And, it, you know, people are not going to go away and the voices are going to keep speaking up. But you know, it's super, super important that we show our support. Uh, thank you to Brad for putting up uh, some information because he has his website there. So if you want to check out that interview, that exclusive interview, go over to Rockfin. Not only, you know, it's a subscription platform, but you get our show and all the shows are sports, there's entertainment, everything like that. So uh, we're hoping to bring more folks over to the platform to diversify the voices a little bit more. And uh, we're excited to get going. All right. We will be right back with our first guest. We're going to be talking about the cost of war. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Murtaza Hussein is a reporter at The Intercept focusing on national security and foreign policy. He's also appeared on CNN, BBC, MSNBC, and you know, all the other media outlets, media outlets out there. Uh, he has a piece out right now in The Intercept titled, Over Two Decades, U.S.'s Global War on Terror Has Taken Nearly One Million Lives and Cost Eight Trillion Dollars. Hmm. Murtaza, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Nomiki. So, uh, you know, these numbers should be shocking us, but I think that for those on the left, we've been, you know, sharing memes and um, reiterating this over and over, especially the last, you know, five or six years. But, you know, really when you break it down, one million lives and you go region by region, um, it's horrifying. And in and especially given the hearings that uh, took place you know, in recent weeks and the conversation about exiting Afghanistan, I, I think what really is shocking to me is that this has not been more of a conversation on a national level um, outside of left communities, given just how big these numbers are. So I, I, my first question for you is, you know, I hate to say in relation to other wars, but if, if you're thinking about like the corporate media world, is this just like, oh, this is normal war money, war, lives lost. And so it just doesn't, it's not worth reporting anymore. Is that why they don't seem to really care? Yeah. You know, there's this, uh, it's a strange sort of uh, tick of the media and I wouldn't even say it's just the corporate media, it's everybody, but it's just like the way things are, things which are novel. The moment they're novel, they're reported, but you know, it's reported the first time and then to report it again and again, it's considered old news or belaboring the point or so forth, or it's not a scoop or, you know, you, you report stories about civilian casualties or the cost of war, for instance, and people will say that, oh, well, this is not new. Like, what's the new story here? And I mean, you know, the fact that it's not new does not mean that uh, it's not relevant or, you know, it's not an ongoing process. So there's a lot of bias towards uh, events which take place at their outset and then, uh, you know, dissuasion from covering them on an ongoing basis. And there's exceptions, of course, but uh, that's just the way things are. They, they chase after novelty as opposed to uh, substance in many cases. And of course, you know, the novelty of the last you know, few years has been Trump. So I feel as if, 
we just, and he's been so anti, he was so anti, uh, war when he, when he ran. Um, but was that true? I mean, did he sort of keep things? Well, you know, it's interesting the way when he ran his campaign, he did have some mixed messages about this and he signaled that uh, he was upset with the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. He also said that he wanted to uh, prosecute the uh, global war on terrorism more brutally. So it was kind of, there was a mixed uh, signals there and what he was saying. But I think that uh, what you could take from it, he was disenchanted with the liberal internationalism as a way of configuring foreign policy. And that was the justifying, at least public justifying ideology for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, many, many other conflicts as well too. Trump is, uh, he's, He's actually, he's not part of a new generation. He's like the old generation, but he's just a, he kind of, and he read, what he said resonated with a lot of people who were also tired of that, many of whom are younger. So, you know, I couldn't say he's anti-war, but he certainly had a uh, harsh critiques of the foreign policy establishment while he was running. While he was in office, though, I found that he was very weak. He very much went along with what they wanted to do. He didn't really push back in any sense. He you know, he claims he didn't start any new wars, but he came very close to starting a war with Iran. And it just was a matter of uh, luck, basically. Their missiles did not hit any U.S. service members in Iraq when they uh, fired a few Januaries ago uh, in the conflict that happened. So, you know, I, I can't think that he could really claim that mantle. But he did uh, He did make some incisive critiques. And I think he did what he did say resonated with a lot of people during the 2015 campaign, that they were sick of uh, this uh, foreign policy establishment, which has generated all these wars that starts and cannot win. I mean, I can't help but forget. I remember the. Um, it's very hard to forget the the, the mother of all bombs right after he yeah. got elected. And yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Brian Williams on MSNBC, if you remember, was like gushing over this bomb. And this is, you know, weeks after they had just spent two years uh, attacking Donald Trump and. You know, they were basically saying this this could be a different type of president. I mean, it, it was, that to me was such a clear indication of just like where their, you know, their moral code is. It's completely insane. Like, I, I was just shocked by this. I was sort of inured to it, too. But the last month or so during the Afghanistan withdrawal, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. There are different outlets and different individuals or different views and so forth. But just that what you're describing, the, the taking it very personally, like not ending the wars or sorry, ending the wars or you know, not prosecuting them to the most fullest extent possible. A lot of journalists in this establishment, you know, legacy media, for lack of a better term, they seem to take it very personally. And they were, it became very clear how instrumental a role they were playing in having the wars continue because uh, they saw themselves as participants or, you know, they saw the prosecution of the war as part of their own personal legacies. A lot of their careers got started with it and they wanted to see it to you know, at their terms of victory or at least not defeat. So, you know, I, I thought it was very disenchanted and I'm not surprised to hear that uh, comment from Brian Williams. There's other comments from uh, Richard Engel and others recently, which really were very like revealing in the sense that how they viewed these wars as things that they were personally invested in. And if you continue them and prosecute them, they'll be happy with you. And if you end them, you know, the worst thing you do is apparently end a war and not to say that the war was ended perfectly logistically or tactically, but, you know, it was always going to be ugly the way it ended. Just taking right. off the bandage, it was going to be ugly. And, you know, I'm not a, by any means uncritical support of Joe Biden. Like, I think it's a lot to criticize and have. But he, I think he deserves some credit for doing something very difficult. And against the full, uh, the full opposition of the Washington foreign policy establishment and much of the media, he did something which Trump did not, he wanted to do, but he did not seem to have the, uh, you know, the carry through or withdrawal to actually perform it because it, it's not an easy thing to do. And, and, and the international community as well. Um, yeah, you know, he's, yeah. he's infuriated the international community in a way that you think <laughs> it just happened like that. Um, 
So let, let's talk about this report because this was this was part of a study that was released by Brown University um, in terms of the casualties in particular. Um, help us understand, like you know who who lost their lives uh, in comparison to you know soldiers, which soldiers, uh, which regions. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, the, this Brown Cost of War Study Report, uh, it's a report ongoing, and a new version was released in the time for the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and it attempts to tabulate the death tolls from various different theaters of operations of the U.S. war on terrorism, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Yemen, Somalia, otherwise. And they came back with a figure of, uh, you know, around 900,000 people who have been killed in the conflict to date. But they said themselves in the, in the report, and I also tend to agree, that it's a very conservative figure. Yeah. Uh, it's very, very conservative. And you know, the real death toll, whether directly through violence or indirectly through destruction of healthcare and infrastructure, uh, water, uh, people becoming refugees and dying as a result of that, it could be much, much higher. And it, it seems to be much, much higher. So also, you know, it's very interesting in Afghanistan, well, tell me all the time. It's very interesting. Afghan journalists, like stuff does not get reported there. Things happen, yeah. which are just crazy on the ground and nothing gets reported. Uh, Anand Gopal had a very you know, important uh, observation. He did journalist for the New Yorkers and a lot of good work on Afghanistan. He said that, you know, in, uh, when Abu Ghraib was happening, he was like, you know, it's very interesting to him because Abu Ghraib is happening in Afghanistan, like every village in some places, like for a very, very long time. So, you know, it's just, it's a very, uh, it's a very blinkered perception we have. But, you know, the study did its best uh, an academically rigorous way of establishing a baseline conservative figure and came up with upwards of 900,000. The majority civilians killed and or combatants. Who, but the thing is, in these conflicts, they're not regular conflicts against foreign armies like World War One, for instance. Right. They're conflicts fought uh, against their counterinsurgencies. So it's hard to tell who's combatant, who's not. And the U.S. military, as we know, they, they deem everyone who they kill as combatant unless proven otherwise. And we saw that recently with this uh, drone strike in Kabul, which was one of the only drone strikes people paid a lot of attention to in the national media in the 20 years war, right at the end of it. But it killed this aid worker and his family, several young children. The U.S. military initially claimed that they'd blown up a car full of suicide bombers. They claimed that they killed a high-level uh, ISIS-K uh, operative, and they continue to insist upon this narrative right until the last moment became impossible. They really, it really showed how they cover things up, or they uh, just you know purport a certain narrative. So even these figures in this Brown Cost of War Studies report, he estimates about three hundred thousand people killed, or upwards of that were uh, insurgents or you know foreign any any combatants of some some permutation, many different types. Uh, you know, this war's been gone for twenty years. Like it's hard to tell who we're fighting against at this point. But they also say that we don't really know because they call everyone they kill a combatant. So it could be much less, it could be it could be a different number. I think the overall death toll also is, is much higher than is reported as they, they seem to think too. Direct death toll, not meaning the consequences of, you know, famine. In, indirect indirect no doubt. Indirect no doubt. But I think the direct death toll also okay. is uh, is higher for the than uh, is being reported. So, you know, one thing, um, I, I was listening to a podcast uh, like a week ago and, and it may have been a few weeks old and it was talking about this soldier and I forget his name and I apologize for not having it handy, but he um, he was a commander and it was an absolutely horrifying story of how he was definitely dealing with some sort of um, mental illness where he decided he was going to go off um, and roguely uh, kill people. And rubber bills? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. listening to the podcast with one of the reporters who, who covered the story, and I believe there's a book about it now, um, 
hearing about the other soldiers in the unit who were aghast by his actions and how they learned that their own commander, somebody who they had been, you know, in the front lines with, um, was, you know, it took him a while to understand that he was just assassinating people. Uh, people who, who let's just be very clear, were, were not even part of the counterinsurgency, in some cases, little girls. Um, so this is uh, Eddie Gallagher's sorry. Is that yes, I'm sorry, Eddie Gallagher, excuse yeah, me. Right, right, yes, sorry. yes. Yeah. I'm reading a book right now, actually. Interesting. You, uh, so you know what I'm talking about, yeah. So, so, but it made me think about this um, from the perspective of there are people in the military-industrial complex, and even I mean, this is this is a complex where you're trained to to basically listen to your commander, you know, no matter what. And even in a situation like this, you had soldiers on the ground who were like, "This is not right. This is not good." It didn't happen immediately, but it happened. And, and I'm wondering, like, after 20 years, how much of this is prevalent within the military, the active military, and why is there not a better assessment of just how, like, who is a civilian, who is not? Why don't we have more accurate numbers? Why isn't there a real analysis? Because there, it's not like everybody's locked up right now. Does that make sense? Oh, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in that case, it's very, it's very tragic, actually, because Eddie Gallagher, he was a senior sort of Navy SEAL, one of the most elite units in the, in the military or in the Navy. And, you know, his own men uh, tried to report him for killing many, many civilians during this deployment. And it's a very difficult thing to do because it's like, you know, you're going against the whole ethos of the, uh, it's like the thin blue line on steroids type thing. Like you're really going against uh, the ethos of the unit and the military to report your commander. But his actions were so incredibly egregious and these guys had a conscience. They tried to, they didn't feel at ease about what was going on. And despite that, you know, they were shut down at every every avenue. They tried reporting it, all the normal chains of command. Uh, people were not, uh, they were not uh, receptive to it. There was a lot of pushback and threats against them. You know, ultimately one tiny bit of what they alleged would actually made it some sort of court-martial of the execution of a teenage ISIS prisoner by Gallagher, prisoner of war during that time. And, you know, you know, he was convicted on a very minor part of that. And ultimately the president himself pardoned him for even of that. So, you know, the it's pres- like President uh, Trump. President Trump, exactly right. So, you know, it's like I the lesson you take in this book is that, you know, it's kind of the easiest thing to just not say anything. And it's so hard to it's the right thing to do to say something. But even if you're a soldier individually in the army, you think this is wrong, you know, you have very limited options of what to do here. And you could be killed by you. Like they were like they were afraid of Eddie Gallagher, and when they're deployed, they didn't know what he might do. And it was many of them all on the same side, and they were all a very elite unit. If you're just an individual soldier, and you know your unit is killing innocent people, then it's very difficult to know what to do in that situation. It's a very difficult situation. And with other cases where people have reported things, very rare. They're very uh, very small, rare in comparison to the actual scale of killing. But uh, you know they it had a lot of blowback. They had suffered a lot of uh, consequences for that. You know, oftentimes there was no punishment for the people who actually did the killing. And, you know, to your point about why is there not more effort or, have, you know, put into uh, documenting or reducing civilian casualties, I think that at a high level, this sort of get to killing civilians is like not good for achieving your military goals because you alienate the population and so forth. But it's not a priority. It's not a priority to uh, investigate these because we know this because they don't actually visit the sites of uh, civilian casualty incidents. DOD is not visit. NGOs visit on their own. Journalists visit on right. their own. The military has more resources than anybody. They have all the footage of every strike they've ever done. They could tell exactly who they killed or not and determine with greater veracity than anybody else. But you just don't do it because there's no, there's not an incentive. There's a greater incentive to just say everybody kills a terrorist and then, you know, great job. And But I, I would just say that that lie is so hard to uh, 
maintain now that we see that the wars have all been lost and there were counterinsurgency wars based on you know winning over the population the population totally turned against the u.s military presence i think in afghanistan by 2005 i think that was in the wars lost it was not inevitably lost war they lost it because just unbelievable brutality and incompetence and, uh, and corruption in the occupation and the public government so you know they can keep like it's just not true i don't believe anything they say. i think consider their statements to be on par with North Korea, unless someone else, third party, verifies it. It was a kind of hyperbolic, but uh, it's kind of uh, you, the, the Kabul drone strike was just such a great example. If there had not been journalists there to, to confirm it, the narrative right. that they killed some terrorists would have been the narrative, and they would have gone to their grave claiming that there were huge secondary explosions when they knew there weren't uh, from the actual drone strike. So no, I, I don't think anyone should, any journalist should not take anything they say at face value at this point. Um. You've already said this, but but let's let's dig in a little bit more. Um, what Joe Biden did in pulling out, and 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 you know, as you said, no matter what, no matter what way, it would have been horrible. I mean, there have been countless countless podcasts about this now, but you know, let's put it in this perspective: when he advocated for this ten years ago, some of the arguments being made were essentially like, we can't do it because you would be at basically a week of bad press. I mean, that's what this comes down to when you yeah, want to right, you know, right, distill right, it. Exactly. It's, right, it's, yes. This is, you know, he'd made a decision saying, we'll take, we'll take the L. You know, at this stage, you know, it's not before an election, it's not before midterms, which by the way, President Obama still lost the midterms. So like, you know, he was he was going up for re-election and, and that weighed as part of it. But um, I mean, how, how, how like unique was his voice? I mean, did, did just put it back into like the the Obama years where he was in the room with Secretary Clinton and Barack Obama, and of course all the generals who have you know famously now laughed at at President Biden. But like how how unique was his voice that time? And like how I don't want to say courageous, but but in this environment, how courageous is it that he's done this as a leader? Look, Joe Biden has been against the war in Afghanistan since like 2009. He's been very, very vocal against it. He's been trying to end it. He was not never in favor of it. Even under Obama, he was leading voices pushing back against the troop surge and so forth. He was had, he actually had a good read on it. And look, like Biden, he's not uh, perfect. He has like we did a big investigation on his history at the Intercept a few months ago, documenting his foreign policy record. It's not spotless, and you know there's a lot criticized about him. But he ended a war. He ended a war, and that's something which nobody in Washington seemingly wanted to do. And he got such a blowback and such a such you know unbelievable amount of uh, you know we saw it. We saw exactly what happened. Like the level of uh, attack against him, the political cost inflicted on him was substantial. I can kind of see why most presidents, but they have to deal with you know two year election cycles, four year election cycles. You don't want to take a you know, eat a gigantic, uh, take an L, a gigantic L like that. If you don't have to, you can just pass it on to your predecessor, or sorry, your successor, uh, something like that. I think Joe Biden is an old guy. He may not run for re-election. You know, he's kind of fed up with all this stuff. He's been against this for a long time. He said, I'm just going to take this. I'm going to end it. He said to myself, I'm not going to pass this war down. It's been 20 years to my successor. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to end it now. And, you know, the way it ended was so ugly. And I think that, that was inevitable because the way the war was, it's two things. The war was fought incompetently and brutally the whole way. So how was the evacuation going to be better? That's right. how the whole war was fought. And secondly, you don't lose a war and have it look like you won. It doesn't happen. You're not going right. to have it look like you won at the end of it. It's going to look like you lost. And they lost 15 years ago, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, for, for, for those who are too young to remember, 
there was that moment where people thought that, you know, that we essentially won uh, if you're going to play the game of winning and losing. Um, and then the Bush administration decided, oh, wait, we can do more. Yeah, Let's go yeah. to Iraq now. Let's just double down in Afghanistan. Unbelievable. 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 And even after, you know, Osama bin Laden, which was what this was essentially all about, um, was caught. It's, uh, they continued. Uh, it's, it's, so, so now what happens? I mean, what are, you, what are folks who have on-the-ground experience and experience covering these things, what, what do they think is actually going to play out? Like, who, who's going to take over um, the, the reins of... I mean, there's, there's some country, I'm sure, we've discussed this on the show, is going to try to keep things stable. Is it China? Is it Iran? Is it, I mean, who, how does this play out with world powers? That's a great question. I don't think anybody foresaw this would happen so quickly. I don't think the Taliban even knew. Like I've been told the Taliban is not, we're not expecting this to happen. They could just make a few phone calls and take over the whole country. Like no one expected that. So now they are in charge. And, you know, it's a very, very dicey situation because they don't have an inclusive government. They have a very Taliban government, which is very alarming. There's apparently splits within the Taliban over how to proceed over certain things. Some people want to be, the political wing wants to be more moderate. The military wing is more, uh, hardcore, hardline about things. So I don't know. I, I think there's been talk about China stepping in, but I'm very skeptical of that because I don't think that the security situation is poor. Uh, you know, they're not rushing to get involved in this problem. I think it could be a huge problem, actually, what happens next in Afghanistan, because look, like basically there's a vacuum which is created by the collapse of the government. And now the vacuum is filled by the Taliban. The Taliban is not universally popular in Afghanistan by any means. And can they govern like, I don't know. I don't think so. Like it'd be, they haven't really provided social services in the past. I don't really have an experience with that. The one thing they provide is like law and order. And it's a very like brutal form of law and order, but it's like people sometimes prefer to know law and order. Uh, so that's kind of what they want. The, the government was so awful in rural areas that uh, this became preferable to a lot of people who don't normally support the Taliban. I, I think that, you know, there could be civil war, very much, very possible. There could be, it could, it could be like so, a civil war between the Taliban and the political establishment um, or ISIS. Like, how does this all? Different ethnic groups, different, uh, you know, it's a huge fractious country with all different, uh, you know, regional differences. Uh, yeah, ISIS K, of course, too, that's ongoing. Uh, you know, I, I would like to say like, what I think is going to happen. I don't know. It's a very good question. Anything could happen. I hope that the international community continues to uh, support Afghanistan because, look, they built a country whose economy is totally dependent on foreign aid. Right. And they built a very dependent country. And if you just, you know, suddenly pull that tomorrow, there's going to be a gigantic humanitarian catastrophe. 80% of the Afghan health system is based supported by foreign aid. So if that disappeared, it'd be a disaster. If there's sanctions put on Afghanistan, that's what people are calling for now, it'd be a disaster. I think that the U.S. It can still exert leverage over Afghanistan to ensure some of its gains over the past 20 years, yeah. however limited they were, preserved. Because the Taliban does not want the country to collapse. It doesn't want doesn't want the repeat of 2001. That was not a good experience for them. Uh, right. They'd like it to be functional and their government to be successful. So they, to do that, they need this ongoing foreign support. And I hope that there is some sort of uh, modus vivendi reached about this subject because ultimately it's going to be Afghans who suffer if there isn't. Well, and, and like how much of the money that was being poured into Afghanistan in terms of aid was going, at least from from the political perspective, was going into the pockets of politicians. I mean, there's so many stories about that, how it was just, it was a weight. Yeah, and, and some of this, yeah. And so, you know, and for what, for, for, for 
I think like the, the, the other question that I have that I, I don't really have a, an understanding of is how much of this is about China, for instance, that put Enron, um, you know, that, that, that wants to maintain, I mean, they put a lot of money into Afghanistan and the infrastructure. And now if there's chaos, does that mean their investment is a complete loss? Um, and will they, will that force their hand to take over whatever, you know, role the U S had been playing it? Like, in yeah, terms yeah. Of that's, a, that's a good question. It's a very, they don't want uh, Afghanistan to be used as a base for, Chinese separatists in the right. uh, Western regions. Uh, they don't want that. You know, there was an op-ed by his fine, former uh, People's, People's uh, Liberation Army colonel in the New York Times a few months or so ago. And he was talking about how China's going to fill the void of the U.S. in Afghanistan, but instead of bringing guns, they're going to bring, you know, engineers and shovels and things like that and uh, rebuild the country. I'm skeptical of that. I'm skeptical. Yeah. Uh, we'll see, but uh, I, don't, I don't really... They don't seem like they're rushing to get involved. And I don't know Afghanistan is such a uh, prized territory for minerals and all these things that people say. Maybe there's some truth to that, but uh, it seems like it's predicated on the security situation. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, there's like different regional interests. Like Iran is north of, uh, they have interests in Herat and other cities as well, too. So, you know, there could be something like that, but I don't know. It's, I really, it's too early to say. And I could give you a prognosis where I think that maybe, I could say the U.S. even working with the Taliban at some point to counter China or contain China. It's not impossible. They've co- did the tactical coordination before. I could see China, you know, trying to loop Afghanistan to the one belt, one road platform, making like some very dependent country upon them as they have other countries. Not impossible, but they're all, it's all speculative. It's all speculative. It's be very hard to make a determinative prediction right now what's going to happen. Only because the rate of events occurred so quickly and it was so shocking I, no one thought the Afghan government would collapse in one week. Maybe six months, year, 18 months, one week. No, that, that was very, very shocking to everybody. So it's going to take a while to sort through this. Well, it just goes back to that original point of they, the amount of money put into the pockets of the politicians who <laughs> were running a house of cards government, clearly. <laughs> yeah, it's completely corrupt government. Time. Yeah, that's why, you know, people not supported. The, the government did not was not in the interest of Afghans. It was in the interest of uh U.S. Uh, counterterrorism interests, and that's about it. Taza, super interesting. Go check out his piece. It's in the Intercept right now. We'll put the link up in the uh, the description. Uh, please come on again. I'm sure there's going to be a lot. My time, my time. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Mickey. Thank you so much, Mertaza. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Luke Savage is back. He is a host of Michael and Us, the host of Michael and Us, I should say, a host, co-host, that's a better way of saying it. And of course, he's a staff writer at Jacobin. He has a piece out right now titled, The U.S. Has Spent 20, 20, I can't even say it, it's like that jarring, $21 trillion on militarization since 9-11. This is, of course, about the cost of the war on terror. Luke, welcome to the Nomiki Show. Hey there. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. No problem. We um we just start off the show talking about the human cost of the war on terror, and, and of course that evolved into a conversation about uh, Afghanistan. And this is the financial cost, and you know this kind of number like it doesn't mean anything to me. I don't know what twenty one trillion dollars is until I see one of those like like Ben and Jerry's. I don't remember if, if you're old enough to remember this, but Ben and Jerry's used to do this um, demonstration where they would like stack Oreo cookies to show like our budget. And they'd be like, this is how much we spend on education. It'd be like, 
a third of a cookie. And then they'd be like, this is how much we spend on, 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 uh, you know, the, the, the Pentagon. It'd be like 9,000 cookies. And that's when I started to understand what $21 trillion is. But like, how did that get passed? And how is it that tomorrow we got this big vote and that's like too much money? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there'd be, you know, if you're doing this with Oreo cookies, they'd be piled up, like, I mean, they, they would, like, go through the ceiling and they'd all be double stuffed. I mean, the the numbers are very difficult to get your head around. Um, I mean, so the, the inspiration for this piece was uh, a report uh, published by the Institute for Policy Studies called State of Insecurity, the Cost of Militarization Since 9-11. Um, and I really liked uh, the way that the authors went about the report, um, because note, they didn't say the cost of the military or the cost of war. They, they used the word militarization because what they're describing is both, you know, a set of discrete budget items, um, but also a process. And I really like thinking about, you know, I think that's a very useful and very revealing way of thinking about what happened after 9-11, because, I mean, you didn't just have all of the very obvious and, and kind of blatant things like, you know, U.S. power being projected abroad in, in Afghanistan and, and later in Iraq, which, of course, was largely justified, at least at the outset, um, you know, by the Bush administration using using 9-11. Um, but, you know, so you had all of that kind of spending, but then you also had uh, all of this other spending um, on things domestically as well. And so that's kind of where the authors got this absolutely staggering $21 trillion figure. They're not just talking about, you know, expenses on cruise missiles and, and you know, conventional, uh, you know, forces and things like that. They're talking about um, all kinds of other things that really inarguably came directly out of the 9-11 attacks or followed from them. So, um, you know, whole new agencies were created, um, right, right. you know. Ice being a, being a big example, and I can go into that some more uh, as needed. Yeah, so so let's talk about some of the um, conventional costs first, just so so folks can separate the two. Uh, you've got these cruise missiles, you've got drones, um, uh, you got the the jets. Uh, I, I how much of this is actually being used? Let's just start. I mean, is there a sense of that? Like, how much is just you know an arms race uh, for for lack of a better term? Sure. I mean, so, um, you know, they calculated that about 16 trillion went into military spending um, over the past 20 years. 7.2 trillion of that was spent on military contracts. So there's a whole other story to be told there about private contracts. Um, yeah, how much of this money is actually going to to, to private uh, to private sources? And even, I mean, uh, I was speaking to an expert on on um, military expenditures recently, and I mean, even parsing the difference between public and private when we're talking about military spending in the United States is very difficult because a lot of these large companies like Lockheed Martin depend so much on um, government contracts. The extent to which they're even private companies, as opposed to kind of I mean, quasi, you know, quasi government companies that have shareholders or something like that. It's very, it's very difficult. It's almost, you know, a question best left to philosophers. P -P, like that's, that's a public private partnership. Um, I don't know if you've learned the lingo. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's very, that is very much the, that is very much the model. Um, but I mean, so breaking down the figures some more, I mean, so 16 trillion that was into military spending directly, Three trillion to veterans programs, which is pretty small uh, mm -hmm. given the overall size of the pie here. Um, 
then you also have, you know, uh, kind of uh, what's called domestic security. So you had 950 billion going to the Department of Homeland Security, 372 billion going to federal law enforcement. Um, so there's a whole, you know, uh, I mean, there, there's a whole complicated breakdown uh, here. And, and it's interesting, you know, you actually find money, you know, militarization, again, I think it's a really useful frame to use here, because uh, we really are talking about a process that gradually comes to inflect, a, you know, policymaking as a whole and spending on all kinds of agencies that you would think would have absolutely nothing to do uh, with, you know, uh, domestic security or foreign policy. So uh, the authors found, uh, you know, spending on militarization that was going to the National Science Foundation, the Marine Administration, things like that. Um, you know, so there's money that's, you know, involved in this stuff uh, that's not even going to kind of, as it were, conventional military uh, sources or, um, you know, so-called domestic security, uh, ICE, DHS, things like that. Um, you know, the, the, whatever the military budget is being voted on, there's always a lot of uh, banter and 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 um, criticism of you know, folks who put themselves out as being progressive, but then decide to vote for the budget. Uh, but I mean, here's a perfect example. It's like, there's always sneaky things that are in this budget and the excuse is, well, I needed to, you know, we had to fund the sciences and, and that's where it was. It was, it's, it's, they snuck it in there. How much of that is true? Or is it like actually just programs that are, you know, uh, scientific studies on how to <laughs> create a bomb that you can hide and like, <laughs> cave or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure of, uh, you know, I have to look at the report again to, to see what the kind of, you know, what the specific line items for, you know, the, uh, the national science foundation and things like that are, but, uh, you know, it's definitely the case that, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff that really is just, you know, further, you know, uh, effectively subsidies for, uh, you know, the military industrial complex, it's, it's snuck into all kinds of things. It's, it's baked in, um, you know, just, uh, I mean, half of all federal discretionary spending goes to the Pentagon, uh, Pentagon. And, uh, Lindsay Koshgarian, who was the lead author on this report told me when I interviewed her, because I also interviewed her later, you know, that doesn't even, that doesn't even mean that, you know, the rest, the other half, you know, is kind of left over for constructive, programs. Uh, she said, you know, when you add up the Pentagon and war, but then you also tack on, uh, you know, the, the deportation machine and, right. and border, uh, you know, border security, homeland security enforcement, federal law enforcement, you know, all of these things having grown exponentially under both Democratic and Republican administrations um, and Democratic and Republican controlled Congresses since 9-11. When you add all of that up, nearly two thirds of all federal discretionary spending uh, goes to what she called violent methods of control. So uh, either the projection of American power abroad or, uh, you know, uh, very punitive security apparatus at home, mass surveillance, uh, you name it. So a huge portion of what the American federal government spends in terms of discretionary spending every year is going to this stuff rather than to, you know, healthcare, education, or all the other things it could go to. Of course. Um, and that's the big fight on, on Capitol Hill right now, uh, as we speak. So, uh, you know, we, we, we just to like put some, illustrate this a little bit more, um, you know, when you see these big tanks roll up at, 
in some small town in North Dakota that just happens to be next to a pipeline that's being built. I mean, is this part of the budget that we're talking about? Is this part of that money? Oh, what? You mean pork barrel kind of spending? Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, like, when you see these militarized tanks rolling in, when you have, like, a town of, I don't know, 5,000 people, maybe, maybe in North Dakota, and, you know, there's, like, 20 uh, folks protesting, indigenous people protesting, water protectors protesting their their land uh, being, you know, building a pipeline, and and it just, it just it's, an, an, it's an egregious... Like, how do they get access to that kind of militarized uh, vehicle? Is it through this kind of spending is what I'm asking. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think, again, that's why the the phrase or the word militarization is so useful, because uh, it really is a process. I mean, you can you can break it down in terms of these discrete line items in a federal budget or something like that. Um, but after 9-11 and, you know, the United States was already a very militarized society before 9-11. And after 9-11, um, you know, when you had this, essentially this declaration of open-ended, unrestricted warfare against a, I think often very and deliberately kind of, you know, vaguely defined series of, of, of threats that were kind of very fluid and constantly being redefined as, as needed by the Bush administration and then later by Obama, Trump, and now by Biden, um, you know, something like that, something that diffuse is is going to percolate through society as a whole. And so, you know, I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement in particular has drawn a lot of attention to, you know, the way that police forces, uh, you know, ha- have had all this access to military grade hardware. Um, and, you know, again, it's not that this wasn't already happening before 9-11, but, uh, you know, anecdotally anyway, it seems that there's been a pretty recognizable spike in police departments, uh, you know, having access to this kind of equipment um, and also, you know, behaving in a way that is more like, you know, an occupying army or something like that. Um, you know, and there's a whole other uh, story to be told there. That's just, uh, you know, this a report like this is just scraping the surface vis-a-vis that kind of thing. Um, let's talk about technology because, you know, big tech, I, I don't think on the surface for a lot of folks would be associated with with uh, the surveillance and and not just surveillance. I mean, there's other aspects in terms of of what they're doing, but how is, how is uh, a company like Amazon, a company like Google, Facebook, whatever, um, maybe not Facebook, but, but how are they woven into the spending? That's an interesting question. I mean, what I'm most familiar with because I, uh, because it's kind of one of become one of my beats is actually the uh, the billionaire space race, um, which, you know, is often justified under the auspices of, you know, um, science and discovery and and that kind of stuff. And which a lot of that is just um, is kind of just an extension of the same process we're talking about um, when you have, uh, you know, SpaceX and, and Blue Origin competing over a government contract, you know, ostensibly you're talking about billions of dollars being spent, um, you know, ostensibly. Uh, that's kind of for scientific research. But a lot of that really is just, uh, you know, the United States government outsourcing or quasi outsourcing scientific research to, uh, you know, private, uh, private corporations in a way that enriches their uh, enriches their shareholders. And, you know, it's all uh, it's all done under this, you know, the auspices of science and discovery and research. But really, it's uh, it's very similar to 
you know, giving money to private military contractors or giving money to Lockheed Martin or, uh, or whatever. So there's money to be made. Um, I mean, and, and, and like, I mean, I, I know that, that you know this pretty well and probably most of our audience does, but like at the end of the day, you just say, well, why don't you just fund the government? Like, why can't you just fund NASA? Why can't you just do it the old fashioned way? I mean, what are you trying to hide? Like, is this about hiding something or is it just about, okay, we can fund the same thing, but then also all of our shareholders can make extra money on it potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think even more than in other areas, I mean, uh, you know, in, in the last four or five years, uh, partly because of uh, Bernie Sanders, because he's worked so hard in two presidential campaigns to draw attention to this. I mean, the extent to which the United States government and the legislative process is just captured by private interests because of, you know, uh, largely unrestricted or, or heavily unrestricted campaign financing laws and, you know, uh, campaign finance donations and things like that. Um, you know, the, the, the U.S. government and the, and the process through which laws are made is incredibly captured. But I mean, there you have to there's an entire other this is happening on a, an entirely different scale when we're discussing anything related to the military or, or anything like that. Um, you know, there are progressive uh, members of the congressional left right now who are trying to push a 10 percent cut uh, in the Pentagon budget. And even that is incredibly controversial. Um just taking uh, 10% of the Pentagon budget and not even reallocating it to anything else, just putting it back into discretionary uh, or into uh, back, back into the treasury uh, is immensely complicated. And uh, Stephen Semler, who uh, has a substack and, and tracks votes on military spending, you know, he's again and again found that there's a pretty direct correlation between uh, members of Congress who take uh funds from, you know, defense contractors or, or kind of related, you know, t- take industry funds basically, and then, and then vote, uh, kind of thoughtlessly for these budgets again and again, and for these big increases, which are still happening. Um, even, you know, it's interesting, this report obviously came out, uh, amid all these retrospectives on kind of the end of the war on terror and things like that. And Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, but the military budget, uh, looks like it's going to keep, Going up. I mean, Biden has proposed, uh, I believe, increasing the military budget. I don't have the numbers uh, in front of me here, um, but it's probably going to keep uh, going up and up. And that reflects the fact that Congress has been more and more captured since 9-11 by these industries and that, you know, there's um, now several generations of politicians that have been trained to kind of justify this sort of thing and justify their votes for it under the auspices of security or, you know, new threats, which they always seem to be discovering, even as, you know, uh, as is the case now, America's withdrawing from major military operations in a country and and in theory, winding down uh, the war on terror of the past 20 years. Listen, Luke, um, we have spent this $21 trillion on our national security, and we've done an extraordinary job uh, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Iraq. I don't know what you're talking about. We are going to be able, we are going to be able to combat the Havana syndrome, our greatest threat. <laughs> it happen. Uh, my only question is, I feel like since technology is evolving, it should cost less. That's what I was told, was that <laughs> the better the technology, the cheaper the cost. But seems like it doesn't work when it comes to the military-industrial complex. Go America. No, and I mean, just think of the potential if they, if they expand, you know, the Space Force and things like that. 
doing this on like the scale of the solar system, I mean, the entire U.S. federal budget will just be like for those Space Force uniforms that look like, you know, I don't know, they look like the the bad uniforms from yeah. uh, from the original Star Trek. I want to like, I really, I want to like tell these people who don't believe that the moon landing happened. It's just like, no, this is, this is the whole point. Like, yes, they want to go to space. <laughs> All right, Luke, um, you're making me feel like there's no purpose to life. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I, I like, I'm just sitting here going, I don't know how you defeat this. I don't know. I don't, I, I just don't know. Um, my only thing is like, maybe there's a custodian or somebody who works at the Capitol who can just like slowly drip put in, um, in everybody's water, specifically the men, something that's just going to take down their, uh, their, you know what I'm talking about. I don't know. <laughs> Cause like <laughs> what drives people to, to, to want to spend this much money on war? Like clearly something is going on internally, like to be that hyped up to want to spend $21 trillion on, on like a space force. Like, you know, it's, Sometimes I feel like I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a movie where I'm like, this is not. If if I were an alien actually landing on this planet and I heard the conversations that were happening at the Capitol right now, and took it as norm, it would. And, and meanwhile, you know, people don't have access to clean water, and oil is spilling spilling into you know communities, and you know, climate change is on everybody's doorstep. I, I just don't see the point anymore, Luke. So next time you come on, we're going to have to talk about how to make people feel better because this is. The military budget is really something that, like, I don't know how you defeat it. It's it's a very depressing uh, it's a very depressing question, but I do think it's I do I do think it's more uh, more possible to discuss cutting the, the Pentagon budget and things like that in public than it was before. It's also worth noting that a lot of this stuff it's it's not this is not popular, right? There's not a broad popular buy-in for you know. I mean, to going to go back to Bernie, who at least you know. Um, you know, he did. He did mention. You know, he did talk about cutting the military budget and things like that. Um, you know, there was a reason why, uh, as as in so many other areas, you know, Bernie got the support that he did, despite the forces ranged against him. Because uh, there's not a broad popular buy-in for this stuff, right? Right. Um, I mean, insofar as there is a popular buy-in, it's you know, in some parts of America, it's because the military base might be one of the major sources right. of jobs or something like that. But um, there is absolutely a broad popular base for making cuts. And, you know, there's even the possibility, uh, you know, I was talking to an expert recently for a kind of Green New Deal style transition, but vis-a-vis -vis the military uh, yeah. and, the, and the military industrial complex. There's so much expertise. Uh, there's so many uh, technicians and engineers and specialists um, whose, you know, expertise could be used for peace instead of war um, in a way that protects you know, thousands or, or hundreds of thousands or even millions of, of jobs, but uses them for something constructive instead of destructive. Um, last question before we go, this 10% uh, cut in spending, let's like, I know it's been, the military budget has been expanding, um, you know, each year. So what would that bring, like what year would that bring us back to? Is your sense? <laughs> Oh boy, I don't. I don't have the. I would need. I would need a spreadsheet uh, okay. in front of me. But um, uh, what I could say is that the the military budget now is, I believe, higher than it was uh, at the you know zenith of the Cold War. It's it's higher than it was uh, you know during the uh, during the Gulf War. 
Um, so, you know, we're, and we're, we're not actually talking about in the grand scheme of the military budget. I mean, we're talking about trillions of dollars here, which like off the top, I think both of us agreed, you know, you'd need a lot of Oreo cookies to, to accurately represent that. But basically this amendment, which has been put forth, it's been put forth before it's been put forth again by Mark Pocan, uh, and Barbara Lee. Um, and you know, it, it would take. 10% 10% of 778 billion and return it to the treasury. So I'm not good enough at math to do that on the fly, but um, you know, so that's, I believe less than less than a hundred billion dollars, um, which is still a lot of money, right? And maybe in the grand scheme of, of things uh, it's, it's not a lot looking at 21 trillion. It's certainly not a lot, but you can do a lot for that uh, for that amount of money. Um, and actually uh, something I forgot to mention before um, I mean, if you, if you, I mean, there are, there are major political choices involved in all of this, right? Choosing to spend this money. If you don't spend it on the military, if you don't spend it on militarization, it's not like it disappears. Um, right. again, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I mean, for even a tiny fraction of the, uh, of what the war on terror has cost, you know, America could have completely decarbonized its, uh, electrical grid. It could have eradicated student debt. Uh, it would be able to take the anti, uh, you know, the, the child tax credit, which uh, cut child poverty in half um, during COVID. Right. Um, it, you, could, you could fund that for 10 years. You could, ha- you could fund preschool, guaranteed free preschool. Uh, and, you could, and you would still have funds left over. Um, this is the, the authors of the report who observed this. You know, this is... Uh, you know, this is a political choice, a series of political choices that, uh, you know, mean that huge amounts of money that are collected from American taxpayers are upwardly redistributed to defense contractors, private military contractors, border security, uh, the CIA, DHS, ICE goes on and on and on. Um, and then, you know, uh, when it comes to the private companies, their shareholders as well. So at the end of the day, all of this is a democratic question. And I think going forward, that's how it should be. Um, you know, that's how it should be conceived of and how it should be framed by people who want to see uh, the Pentagon budget and other things related to it cut. I mean, there needs to be a Boston Tea Party, but for, you know, the Pentagon budget and militarization. Well said. I call it the Oreo, <laughs> the Oreo cookie party. <laughs> um, Brad just said, and this is a very good point, that Biden recently said something to the effect that for the first time in 20 years, the U.S. is not at war. Yet we're spending more on military than any time before. So, you know, great. <laughs> Great deal. <laughs> America, not great with money. <laughs> Luke, thank you so much. Um, you know, keep up the amazing work. Hopefully next time, uh, you know, you have something more positive to report to me. That'd be really great because I'm just going to go eat my my feelings with Oreo cookies now. <laughs> Cheers, Domiki. We'll, we'll talk about something, uh, something, something happier next time, I hope. Yes, hope so. <laughs> Cheers. All right. Take care, Luke. We will be right back after this brief little break with our fabulous panel to talk about something we should be spending money on, human beings and jobs. But that's, of course, the controversy in Washington. We'll talk about that right after this break. All 
right. You guys know I love my Sunset Lake CBD. And I know so many of you also love Sunset Lake CBD because I'm getting notes from people now about how great Sunset Lake CBD is and how much it's changed your life. It actually has changed my life. This is not me. First off, I don't peddle products. Let's just start with that. I like products. I talk about them. And Sunset Lake just happens to be a really wonderful company that supports left media. Um, but there's lots of products I, I I love. Like I have this little immunity shot thing that I drink um, next to me. I have my cold brew that cost me $7. <laughs> because it's New York. I have kombucha that I drink every day. Um, and I, of course, you know, I have my, my wine collection, which I can talk about on a, another day. We promised that show. No, but Sunset Lake CBD is, I learned about Sunset Lake CBD from the majority report from Sam Cedar, who fact-checked me when I said CBD was a scam. And he goes, oh, no, 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 you have not had proper CBD. And he was right. I ended up getting some CBD from a bodega in my neighborhood. And, um, it was, it didn't taste great and I didn't really understand it. And so I gave up on it. And then I tried Sunset Lake CBD. They sent me a care package and my life was changed. Literally, my life was changed. I have, I sleep well. Like I have a monitor here to track my sleep because I sleep poorly and I drink a little bit of the tincture with some tea or some water, the Sunset Lake tincture, and I sleep a full night sleep. The deep sleep bars on my little thing are always dark. When I do Sunset Lake CBD, I ran it out a few weeks ago and I saw the difference, which just reminded me how great this product is. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer owned company that ships their craft CBD directly from their farm in Vermont to your door. They have all types of products. They have coffee, they have salves, they have gummies, which are delicious. They have tinctures, which is what I use every night. Uh, they have creams. And of course you can actually by the hemp itself. You can buy it and roll it and smoke it or do whatever you want with it. Um, it's They've got a great product. When you are supporting Sunset Lake CBD, you are actually supporting sustainable agriculture uh, that enhances rural com communities and economies. That is, of course, rural economy in Vermont. It helps create meaningful employment. Their minimum wage is $15 an hour. And on top of that, employees own the majority of the company. And just to add to that, they support shows like The Majority Report, David Pakman Show, and our show, which makes a huge difference. Seriously, as I start off the show, you know, we are really fighting the big tech giants. And so to have advertisers come in, local advertisers, small businesses who believe in this, who are progressive, it makes a huge difference because it just shows how much we're a community. They have a new um, product out right now. I don't know if you guys know about uh, the dog biscuit, but it is a, it's been out for a few months now, but it has simple ingredients, just three, peanut butter, pumpkin, and oat flour. So you could eat it too. You could eat it with your dog uh, if you're into that, but it helps. It's it, Each of the biscuits have five milligrams of CBD and there's no artificial flavorings or sweeteners just to make that very clear. But for our dog, Bijou, who is a Bichon Poodle, who gets a lot of anxiety when mommy or daddy or whoever are not home with him, it calms him down. You give him one of those, or if he goes on a plane, for instance, it calms him down. It's really good to ease anxiety and frustration. And especially if you have a puppy, they'll like, you know, chew at things. Um, I've had dogs for many years. I'm very familiar with all the different types of ailments that they get. Uh, if you don't walk them like 32 miles a day, which is another trick. But um, anyways, great product. They have a dis a, a, a a sale out right now. It is an end of summer sale for the whole month of September. Are you ready for this? 50% off of all hand-trimmed hemp flower, smalls, and keef. 
The sale runs through the end of the month. They're ramping up their 2021 harvest season. So to celebrate that all, they're offering 50% off. All you have to do is type in the code FLOWERPOWER, F-L-O-W-E-R, POWER, P-O-W-E-R, no space, at the checkout, and you will get 50% off of all hemp flower, smalls, and keef. Uh, and, if, and also on top of that, I'm sorry, there's another new product uh, out right now, the CBD oil the tincture, they have um, increased it to 1,200 milligrams, and they've infused it with 90 milligrams of melatonin. I haven't tried this yet. I'm already sleeping well, so I'm not, I don't even know what's going to happen with the melatonin. I mean, I get jet lag sometimes when I'm traveling. So uh, if you have trouble falling asleep and staying asleep, this is the product, and it has a nice mint flavor. I am excited to try the product. I'll let you know how it goes. But on top of all that, if you also want to get a discount, you can go in and type in no mean. You'll get 20% off of your entire order when you go to Sunset Lake CBD. Dot com. Welcome back. We have an amazing panel. Here they are. You know Jordan Zacharin. He's the media producer with More Perfect Union. He's also, uh, he runs the Progressives Everywhere newsletter, which spotlights pro- progressive candidates, campaigns, and causes. He does great work. Go check it out at progressiveseverywhere.substack.com. And of course, More Perfect Union uh, has great reports, which we're going to touch on a little bit later. So welcome to the show, Jordan Zacharin. And Julia Doubleday is the deputy director of committee. She's on the committee program, which of course airs here Mondays. They're on a sort of hiatus, but still producing content. I'm a little confused, but... We all are. It's fine. <laughs> first season completed. Yes. yes. I didn't know we had seasons. We don't have seasons on our show. Well, you know what? Aran's a traditionalist, so he he thinks we're on network TV. Yeah, I noticed. I was like, I I have to get rid of that. And like, I'm like, you know, we have these new uh, partnerships where they're like, no, we want you to do live streams. And I was like, I want to show. (laughs) Like, live streams. And I'm like, to do what? They're like, just talk. Like, no, I'm not. I want to show. It's it's one of those one of those. Uh, like sensation I've never understood like Twitch you know like yeah. I, lots of my friends watch it but I'd rather play the video game and I'd rather uh, you know than watch someone else and I'd also rather like listen to a structured conversation than someone just you know I have enough empty uh, harmful thoughts I don't need someone else's entirely agree I want people on who know a lot more about me and you know we have this thing called a rundown like I read about this stuff before I try to ask some questions that you know I'm not the expert but putting experts on lot more interesting to me than having um, Shmimi Shmore uh, take on, you know, progressive members of Congress just because it's fun to shit on people. Like, anyways, internet's a fucking cesspool. It is fun, though. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Um, So I want to start off with the news. So the first half of the show, we talked about, like, all the money we're spending on the military-industrial complex and just, like, how much of our money goes to that and why, like, no one seems to care that we just, you know... uh, at this point, millions of lives have been been um, ruined and killed, and communities have been upheld, and regions have been destabilized, and yada yada yada, and refugee crises, and oh by the way, like we're spending money on like you know the space force now. Um, meanwhile, I don't know if you know, but there's this vote. It's really controversial uh, that's taking place tomorrow, and we some people just think we can't afford to pay for our decrepit roads and we just can't afford to give jobs to to Americans 
in an economic crisis. It's just, it's just too much, everyone. It's just too, too much. So I want to um, play a few clips to just illustrate the dynamic. Let's just start with uh, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. She is the leader of the Congressional Progressive Caucus on MSNBC talking about hashtag withhold the vote. Instead, she is the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And Congresswoman Jayapal, uh, there is frustration breaking out in the Congress with Senator Sanders, with other members, and right here at this desk that I'm sitting at in trying to figure out what is going on with Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema. Do you have any better insight into this? Well, Lawrence, it's great to see you. And um, I will just start by saying the position of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, we are a 96 member strong caucus, has been for three and a half months that we are not going to move one piece of the president's agenda without the much bigger piece of the president's agenda. And I just want to take you back just for a moment to five months ago, August 28th, 2021. What happened on that night, Lawrence, is President Biden came out of the White House. He went down Pennsylvania Avenue. He came to the Capitol and he delivered a speech. He delivered a speech to Congress. I happened to be one of the few that was invited to that speech because it was COVID times and not all of us could go. I was sitting towards the back of that chamber and I listened to this newly elected Democratic president with a Democratic House majority and a Democratic Senate majority in that chamber, not all of us, but representative of us, listen to the President of the United States lay out an agenda. That agenda was for childcare for everyone. It was for paid leave. It was for universal uh, community college. It was for getting lead out of waters and having clean water. Zip code you live in. It was for health care, lowering prescription drug prices. It was for housing, affordable housing to house the unhoused people. And yes, it was also for roads and bridges. Now, here we are today, and people want to frame this as progressives versus moderates. But let me just tell you, 96% of Democrats in the House and the Senate support the president's agenda, which is the Build Back Better agenda. And what we know is that 4% of members of the House and the Senate are not supporting the president's agenda. Okay, so, um, you know, she, she's, she's, she's obviously thought very hard about how she wants to message this to a greater audience, just that this is an overwhelmingly democratically supported um, uh, bill. But what is not... Iterated. She hasn't necessarily. I think she's she's not focusing as much on who is holding it up and why they're holding it up. And I feel like, and I'd love to open this up to you to hear what you guys think. That the more, yes, this is what's in the bill, but like comparing it to what they're. I mean, they're putting it out. They're saying this is a bipartisan bill and blah blah, blah and that's their messaging. Versus these are people who are literally holding up all of the things that we're putting forward because their bill is not going to move forward and actually change your lives. Am, am I wrong? Like, I feel like there's, there, there, there's, there's some sort of confusion about how to take on these obstructionists and, and whether or not to label them as obstructionists. Jordan, go ahead. You know, I would say, first of all, it's a, it's a pretty nice self-own for the people who worked on that bipartisan infrastructure deal to make it so bad that it doesn't matter if it gets sunk. You know, like no one, no, I don't think any progressives like, oh no, we're not going to make 
big tax breaks for uh, coal companies and to create roads, you know, uh, in tw- 12 years. You know, there's no there's no part of it that's so great that, you know, that, that Biden campaigned on that anyone really wants. I couldn't even tell you what's in it, really. And so I think that, you know, that that the fact that they did that just shows like how bad faith they were in the first place. The people, they had no intention of actually passing anything big or large or getting anything actually done. And so the fact that they did this, it, it's uh, jokes on them, I guess. But Julia, I mean, you, you work in the space, so you know very well what it's like to, to develop these these strategy plans and, and, and messaging around this. There's something missing. Like, I don't understand why they're having such difficulty messaging this to the American people and 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 putting the pressure in a way. I, I don't know if they're not being aggressive enough. I don't know what's happening internally. But, like, something is missing in the rhetoric that is not being reflected in public polling, for instance. I think the difficulty here to sort of um, excuse um, a little bit of what you're talking about, I think the difficulty here is that it is just a very complex process what's happening. I mean, it's not as simple as, you know, giving a two-line statement. I think Pramila was actually doing a pretty good job in that clip of uh, honing in on a couple of things that people can easily remember. So if all they remember from that is just that, like, one, it's the president's agenda. I think the reason that they keep saying that over and over again is that they know that in the press they're being slandered as, like, these are crazy leftist socialist progressives that all want to do this thing. So by continuing to sort of marry it to Biden, um, they're really pushing back on that sort of narrative that's happening. Um, And then the other thing she said that I thought was really productive was that she said, you know, 96% of Democrats are supporting this. So again, it's not this equal tug of war where there's like some radicals over here and some moderates that are just being reasonable. It's literally a couple of obstructionists. So I actually do think that that conveys that they are obstructionists. Um, You know, do I think that they should use the word obstructionist as often as they can? Yeah, definitely. For sure. That's exactly what's happening. I mean, Manchin and Cinema don't have any agenda other than stopping this bill. There's no they haven't come back to the table and said, you know what, this is too much. And here's why. And here's what I want to do instead. I I don't want to fund childcare. uh, So let's cut a trillion dollars out of the bill. I mean, that's a hard thing to say to the public. Right. Um, So, you know, to go back to what you were talking about previously, uh, the Republican objections to this, which Manchin and Cinema sort of glommed onto, it's always been a bad faith argument. Always, like it, it's it's always there's money for war, there's money for tax cuts for rich people, and then there's no money for any of this other stuff. That that at this point, like that should be so clear to everyone, and it's not. So I guess we just have to just keep reiterating that again and again and again um, as we come up on this debt ceiling crisis. This is again, you know, this issue of Republicans. Blaming Democrats for the spending when, of course, you know, we raised the debt limit under them several times. Several times. Much more. And, I'm sorry, go ahead, Jordan. I was going to say that I think it's the same thing with the filibuster in the sense that Cinema doesn't want to say what she wants to cut. Manchin's a little more honest about wanting to means test or, you know, wanting to just like allow the world to joke on coal. But generally speaking, they don't want to get rid of the filibuster because they don't want to say, like Julie said, we don't want childcare. We don't, they don't want to have to take those votes. They do not want to have to, uh, they do not want to have to like say that to the public. They do not want to have to say, oh, we don't want to lower drug prices to the public. Right. So they don't want to have to take that vote. They do not want to have to have that like in the, in the piece, they don't want to say to the public, we don't want to do that. So it's the same thing. It's these few Democrats who are just so desperately married to these awful, you know, whether it's corporate interests or their old time politics that they just, but they don't want to say it. And I think like, that's the most frustrating thing about it. You know, like if you're going to be a jerk, like I'll give Republicans credit, like they're evil and they own it. 
Uh, instead, we have these we have these Democrats that you know speak a big game, but then just will do whatever they can to gum up the works and make it impossible to actually get anything done. Well, that's because Democratic voters are more likely to you know read uh, read the votes rather than um, listen to like some propagandists on Newsmax talk about how they supported. I mean, like they go home and they say, I support X, Y, Z, and then they go and they vote in an opposite direction. Um, I want to show this clip uh, that I think highlights kind of the dysfunction that's happening. And and I'm curious where we go from here after watching this clip, because I think Elizabeth Warren and other senators and Congress members are losing their 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 patience with these obstructionists. So let's let's play this clip. Uh, with Senator Cinema and Senator Manchin, we're discovering at the end of a legislative process that they apparently have dissatisfactions with a deal they appeared to agree to uh, months ago and uh, a structure that they voted for in the Senate budget resolution of $3.5 trillion. Uh, and so where where are we now? These two senators have, in effect, stopped progress in the House. Uh, and Speaker Pelosi is now trying to put something together with these two senators as what appears to be either the roadblock or the final pieces that have to be put together on this bill. Right. Well, literally for months now, uh, Democrats in the Senate, Democrats in the House have been operating with one goal in mind and one understanding. And that is there's going to be a lot that needs to be done in the reconciliation, this whole package. Yes, we need roads and bridges. We need water and sewers. But we also need child care and broadband. We need health care. We need housing. And most of all, we need to make a big down payment in the fight against climate change. All of it has been out of there and out there. And the agreement has been we're going to move it all together. And I hope that's the direction we're still going in. The House progressives have been terrific on this. They've said we had an, had an agreement and we expect everyone to stick with the agreement. The progressives are not backing out. The House Democrats are not backing out, I hope. And that means we got to move everything together. We cannot have the train leave the station and leave a whole lot of pieces of what American families need back on the platform. Not child care, not, not housing, not health care, not climate. We can't do that. Okay, so, so you know, she's, she's being very um, political about this, right? But there's a sense of frustration. It's, you can feel it in her voice. You can feel it in other lawmakers' voices about Senators Manchin and, and, and Cinema. And, you know, if they're not doing it, then the hosts are doing it. Um, we're going to show a clip in a second of, of, of that happening because, you know, the reality is, like, like Julia said, we're spending so much money on all these other stuff and the debt ceiling is their excuse. But, you know, it wasn't an excuse during any of the Republican administrations when we raised the debt ceiling. Um, my confusion, though, is this is they're, they're making it so much about process. Just literally say we're in an economic crisis. We're in a health crisis. And these two senators are blocking it because they're owned by Cole and and Lockheed Martin and who else? I mean, I, I just don't understand, like, why they can't change their tactics in this moment. They can't rise to the occasion and play hardball. Jordan. They, 
they've been coddling these people for the last nine months and it's only made it worse. You know, that's the thing. It's like we, you know, in March, right, they were mentioned was saying, oh, maybe we can move to talking filibuster. And, you know, then Kirsten Cinema hung out with the National Restaurant Association and the Chambers of Commerce in Arizona and said, just tell me what to do on the PRO Act. Just tell me wh- whatever you guys want. I'll, I'll make it happen. Let me know. And nothing, this is the first time, I and mean, Ro Khanna went on TV last night as well, uh, a Congress member from Silicon Valley said, these people are, I, I have the richest uh, people in my district and I want to tax them, um, which was pretty funny. And like, they've been coddling these people for nine months and gotten nothing out of them. And this is kind of like, uh, you know, Democrats, Democrats MO, you know, letting these people take the fire. But now they're not just taking the fire for the things that, you know, they, a lot of Democrats don't want to pass, unfortunately, like Green New Deal, for example, they're taking the fire, they're now blocking everything. You know, so it's gone from these people being useful targets, right, for the Chris Coons of the world, but for the, for the uh, you know, Tom Carpers of the world who also didn't want a minimum wage increase, who didn't want to pass, you know, didn't want to get rid of the filibuster. They've been, like, useful targets for them. Now they're just trying to muck up everything. They've created, they've created this monster. There's no reason for Kirsten Sinema, a first-term senator from Arizona, who, like, squeaked through an election against the worst candidate possible. I mean, she beat, uh, you know, Martha McSally. Like, you couldn't typecast a worse candidate. And she beat her by a few points. You know, she is now the one she all of a sudden believes that she should have all these all this uh, power. It's because Democrats coddle her. And now they're dealing with the monsters they created. And in terms of Joe Manchin, look, I think he's the worst. And, you know, I, I applaud those people who are kayaking to his houseboat. And I wish I had been on uh, one of those canoes. But, you know, like, he, at least he's been in the Senate for a while. And he, he'll, like they said, he'll move a little bit. It's To me, it's cinema that's like, what is happening? Why are they allowing this? And, you know, we just saw today... Uh, a bunch of Democrats and progressives said that we're not over the weekend. They said, you know, we will do it. We'll censor her if we censor her, if she doesn't move in the filibuster and the reconciliation bill. And now, like, they're going to support a primary. And I think it's, you know, long enough like this. She should have had these consequences yeah. this summer. But, yeah. you know, at least something's happening. And we need, I think, you know, a bunch of Democrats in the Senate to say, you know, right. get a little retweet, give a little retweet, say, uh, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Listen, I mean, this is, this is, I, I don't like that she made it about like the progressives are doing a great job because the reality is what Pramila Jayapal said was it's all Democrats. It's these two outliers, one who's like the effing Lauren Boebert of the Democratic Party right now, and the other who's just like the Tom Swazi of the Senate. I don't know. I can't think of any. He's like, literally, listening. like nobody likes you. Nobody likes you. Literally. Nobody likes him. No, he's actually much more charming than Tom Swazi. That's actually what's dangerous about him. But Julia, I mean, the way that I see this playing out, and this is, I'm curious how you see this in, in the next few years, is, um, okay, cinema might be vulnerable, and there might be a Democrat who can challenge her and win, and that would be fantastic and uh, wonderful. But I actually think that these two and the gang in the in, in Congress right now, the the the, the kooky uh, Josh Gothheimer and 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 Swazi gang, they're putting the rest of Democrats at risk for their reelections because if mm-hmm. they can't go home and say I've delivered this to you, and you know Democrats are are unable to get things passed at all, and and they're incompetent in Washington, like that's the messaging that's coming out of this. This is no longer about cinema and mansion and their donors. This is about having right. a Democratic Party that could that is going to see them on a they're going to see them as the ones who are literally, um, you know going to get rid of their jobs. And I think that's why Schumer and, and Pelosi are stepping it up a little bit, but clearly not enough. I mean, I think this is an issue that is continually 
I, I, I think the issue you're talking about is the reason that progressives have begun to primary Democrats and to try and take over the party, essentially, is that, um, you know, we've had these decades and decades of the party, the Republicans moving far right and the Democrats being like, well, we don't want to we want, we don't want to be seen as the people who don't get anything done. So I guess you I guess we agree, you know, and just sort of always um, giving up when it comes to these direct confrontations. And that's that's not a coincidence. You know, we know that donors fund Republicans that are extremely strong Republicans because they are, um, you know, very open about their agenda, which is to. Uh, not tax the wealthy and not tax corporate actors and sort of let them have their way with the country. Um, and then they fund weak Democrats. In other words, they fund Democrats who agree with them on social issues, but, it, you know, maybe they're more wobbly on all this other stuff because, you know, they're donors, they're rich people. Like, of course, they want to send people to Congress who are going to tax them. Like, they don't, they're not going to elect a socialist. That's why we've been trying to elect people uh, ourselves through this very corrupted system. And to go back to a point you made, uh, Nomi, about, um, you know, well, why don't they just say, these senators are owned by big oil and yada, yada. I mean, that's just a total third rail of cable news. Like they're never going to talk about people's donors because we have to maintain this illusion of this functional democracy where the people's will is embodied in the representatives that we send to Congress. So if you were to get on TV every day and talk about, well, I mean, we didn't really elect this lady. Like she basically, you know, Joe Manchin, he basically was sent there by big oil. Well, that's a whole separate, separate conversation. Then, then you're talking about, well, why, why have we been talking about Russiagate for the last four years if we never had any democratic process to corrupt in the first place? I mean, this is this is something that they're just not going to discuss. Well, I, so, mean, I mean, I was saying like they're, they're colleagues, not, you know. Oh, no, but I Williams. think, you know, many of the colleagues as well, you know, Nancy yeah. Pelosi doesn't want to get on TV and say like donors own the <laughs> own the representatives because well, but, you know, who owns her? Warren could. Um, yeah, Warren Fair. Um, but I will say, you know, I do want to give some credit here because I think that what we're seeing in spite of this being this super messy process is the train leaving the station in terms of our goals for a progressive wing coming to fruition. So right yeah. now we're in this, this massive game of chicken, but we've never really made it to this point before where we said, actually, no, fuck you, because here's what you said to me and this is what we're doing. So we're at a point where if the CPC continues to hold out and they continue to hold the line on this, that's somewhere we really haven't been before. And that will have consequences for Republicans. You know, they can they can talk all they want about how, you know, they're not going to agree with us and they're not going to do this and they're not going to raise the debt ceiling. But there's a lot of stuff they want in there. There's stuff they want in the infrastructure bill. And there's absolutely, you know, they're going to have a meltdown if we uh, default on our debt and get our credit rating downgraded. I mean, all of this stuff would have massive, massive economic ramifications that will be very, very things that their donors do not want to happen. You know, this, the entire global stock market crashing is something that affects all of us. But people with yachts really don't like it when that line goes down. So, I mean, I think that they will have something to say about it if the Republicans literally just let the entire country go into default. Well, I really hope that Nancy Pelosi and the DCCC decide to buy some ads. I don't know, blaming Republicans for this. It would be really wonderful if they actually use that money that everybody's just drowning them in. And the consultants yeah. that they're paying would buy some ads and play hardball and say, this is what happens when you elect Republicans. And, you know, yeah. that, that would that would be something else. Um, oh. Go ahead, Jordan. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, one thing that, and this maybe is the nihilist in me, but it's a lot of frontline Democrats who are in you know position to lose if we if they do not if they do not pass big things they want what's happening they want the right. big uh, reconciliation bill it's the, these 
people that are like either like either in safe seats or they are, you know, kind of in swing seats, but they have a lot of money on their side that are trying to kill it. And so it, okay. So maybe we'll make I, I think progressives are smart to say, all right, screw it. Like, if you don't want to pass uh, the big thing, we won't pass the crappy infrastructure bill. We won't give you any talking points. Uh, you know, some people like Kurt Schrader and Scott Peters, those people are very, uh, we'll see what happens with their districts, but they are very, I mean, there's been protests outside Kathleen Rice's uh, office that we covered in Long Island, and we're going to be at a, San, a protest in San Diego. You know, people that are, um, you know, people who are pissed off at the representatives. And in these safe blue districts, they're either going to see primaries or in places like, like cinema, she's going to see a primary. So, okay. So Democrats lose power. Like what do progressives care if nothing's happening anyways? Like, I think there needs to be some sort of, you know, I know the tea party is very astroturf, but there's got to be a moment where democratic representatives and members of Congress and Senate are afraid of their voters. And this may be the moment where they just try, they just flex too much power. Uh, you know, they, they did too much, they, too much corruption and they allowed themselves to be corrupted to the point where they didn't get anything done for their voters and they're going to pay the price. And, you know, the progressives that we care about, the ones that we see in office that are holding strong, but Pramila John Paul's not going to lose re-election. She's not going to get primary. You know, like AOC and all these people are not going to get primary. If they do, they're going to lose very badly. And so from a sheer, like, I, obviously we need the reconciliation bill to pass. Like there's so much in there, so much good that people work so long for. And the idea of Republicans running things is pretty scary. You know, I, I, I'm glad that we Democrats really get their NLRB in, right? For at least the next couple of years, we were able to get, you know, FTC, Lena Khan in there. So, you know, things have passed that could have a long-term impact, obviously, like uh, going forward. But should then none of this happen, then like, so the last two years, nothing more happens under the Biden administration. Like, what do we, what do we like, what do we lose? And this is, this is, this is the final point I want to make is it's almost like we need a president who has, um, I don't know, some power to literally just stronghold them. It's, this is what is, is infuriating to me is these are a, a handful of folks that you don't just have them over for dinner or for cookies or whatever the hell that was or coffee. Mm-hmm. You have to play LBJ and that is leadership and that is how you move votes. And if the entire, like we're facing an existential crisis as a country, like an economic existential crisis with income inequality, you know, worse than it's ever been with child poverty, worse than it's ever been, you know, we're spending like two out of $3 on like the space force and like, you know, drones and, 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 and our schools are in disarray. We New Yorkers know that we're drowning in our city right now. Like literally like people are drowning in basement apartments. Like we have a housing crisis. We have an education crisis. I can go through the list, right? We know it, but then we have climate change and I just can't, I'm trying to take a, like a hundred thousand foot perspective on this and think back and say, well, what could have been done if this doesn't go through? What could have been done? You know, what could have been done if effing Joe Biden grew a pair, excuse my misogynistic language, and actually act like the president and strong arm them. What, what on earth could he possibly want from in the future that is more important than this right now? This is the yeah. most consequential bill in two generations and could potentially slow down climate change and economic despair. I just don't understand what is not worth doing this. It's hard. I, I think that maybe their minds are bottled, right? Like they, they for so long kind of like 
kicked progressives. They've so, for so long kind of, you know, tried to make progressives give in, right? It's always been like, all right, the left has to lose their issues. They get maybe some crumbs. And now all of a sudden it's it's wild to see just progressives lining up, you know, the, the Bernie faction of the party, uh, you know, and I consider myself part of that, lining up behind the Biden agenda. I think maybe just, you know, having been in the Senate for so long, having been in D.C. for so long, he's just so used to kicking hippies. Maybe it's just a matter of like, uh, you know, and the personal loyalty he has to the party, maybe he just... I, it's, it's hard to explain, but I can't imagine between this and the filibuster what why he wouldn't just go for broke. Like, you know, yeah. just, honestly, be selfish. Like, this is your legacy at, at play. Well, and, and, and just yeah. to put a – I'm not even going to say this is a progressive agenda. This is an economic crisis. We're in a crisis right now. And he, as a president, progressive – you have to respond to a crisis. You can't just not put any money into this. Republican – I bet you if we had a Republican in office, they would do the same thing. They would have some version of this and just, you know, throw out some tax breaks in between. But they would have to spend money on, on certain projects. It just has to happen when you're in this much of a crisis. I think you're right about that. Um, on the infrastructure side, I think all the stuff in the social spending bill, Republicans yeah. just kick the can. Like, they don't care. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're correct that, like, all of these things contribute to overall economic health, but Republicans have no foresight to be able to understand that. They can only see as far as, like, the next quarterly balance sheet, and they have no concept of other thing, you know, like they have no concept of like, Oh, if the whole country is healthy, that costs everybody less money, you know, like they don't care. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's really crucial at this juncture for the progressives just not to back down. It doesn't matter. Like you were saying, you know, if nothing gets passed, nothing gets passed. That's not their fault. That's the fault of the obstructionists. They need to let the rest of Congress know that the progressive wing is not going to be kicked around anymore. That's the most important thing to come out of this. So again, you know, it sort of goes back to like during election season, you hear these sort of like um, blue dog Democrats saying, well, you know, you have to vote Democrat no matter what. And I always say, well, you know, if that's what you're saying to your representative, what you're basically doing is giving them license to do whatever the hell they want. You're basically saying, no matter what you do, I will always come back to you. That's a terrible way to enter a negotiation. And uh, by the same token, in Congress, um, if you go into the negotiation and you just say, well, at the end of the day, you know, it's most important for me that something gets passed, that's a great way to not get what you want. So um, they're not doing anything differently than what Republicans do constantly. And that's what they need to be doing. So I, you know, for the first time, we're seeing a little bit of bite from the progressives and um, obviously from the Democrats as a whole led by the progressives. Uh, we're in a we're in a good place. I mean, I'm proud of where they are. I think that um, regardless of what happens next, like this is setting the precedent for like, you have to come to the table. If you want to get anything done, you have to come to the table. And if you don't, that's on you. Um, guys, I want to shift gears real quick because I, I, I have to touch on the story. I was really happy that Jordan also jumped in on this one. Um, <laughs> this is I'm glad that Julia mentioned uh, short-term financial uh, gains because I actually, and I actually I think a lot of people feel this way, that entire financial system based on short-term, uh, you know, it, it, it's 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 the essence of everything. It's, it's, it's why we're like collapsing as a civilization. Um, media. Uh, yeah, so there's this company called Ozzy. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm sure many of you don't know what it is because uh, <laughs> isn't it named after Ozzy Mandias? Isn't that the um, like the yeah. progenitor of the yeah? That's great. There's also uh, my awareness of it was a poster about the Carlos Watson show in my neighborhood. And I didn't know what it yeah. was or who he was. So that's yeah. that's all I know about it. So this is like such a beautiful um, 
it's it's like a beautiful example, an illustration of really like the crisis in media and the crisis in 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 not just media, but like the Elizabeth Holmes issue, is that you have these companies that kind of came up in in the Obama years. I'll, I'll say like because that's when I remember they were all circling around when when I was a national coach for Obama. They would all be at these parties and giving money to Obama, and and you know the investors would invest in these media companies and they'd get like a shit ton of money. And of course, you know, many of them failed or got eaten up by other ones. And it was all happening at a time when like actual journalism should have just been funded. Like, I don't know, news, newspapers, like should have, should have, local newsrooms were falling apart. Investigative reporting, like what is that that doesn't exist anymore? Statehouse reporting, not a thing. And like with that arise and corruption happens. But then these media companies came in and they were like getting all this money and they were promising all these big things. And, and turns out a lot of them were a house of cards just total bullshit because, you know, these investors didn't care about what kind of journalism was coming out of them. They cared about like how much money they were making in six months, in five months, in, you know, a quarter, whatever. So Jordan, I, I saw you tweet about this. While while you give us your take, uh, Brad, can you just kind of scroll through some of the, the, the tweets on this so people can get a little context about this company? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it was, you know, I've been and uh, it's funny that you were uh, in these uh, meetings or these events with Obama people, uh, with you know people who were funding and donating and wanting to run these media or, uh, organizations. I was working for them, just <laughs> jumping from place to place, trying to keep a job as they'd all fall through. And I remember being at Yahoo, and you know it was falling apart when I was there, 2015, 2016. And I remember thinking, like, this company makes a billion dollars a year, gets like a billion views a year, like. I'm not saying it's a great company, but at least like it made something. But all these companies that didn't have any profit margin, that didn't have any, uh, you know, didn't have any like anything really to show for themselves other than some like inflated Facebook video stats, they were getting so much money. And so Yahoo was dying. And again, don't feel bad for Yahoo, but everything's good. Everyone's always chasing after the next shiny thing in media. They're chasing after like the big investment opportunity. And like when the entire game is, can we make a billion dollars on this? Like 99% of it are going to fail. Even like BuzzFeed has to go public now with like a, uh, SPAC, which they, it's like a, a scam, yeah. like a reverse uh, acquisition partner. And so media, if you're only funded by a few billionaires or a few trillionaire investor, investment firms because they think they can possibly get a huge return for, you know, $50 million, then it's going to fail. You know, these all these places are going to fail. They're going to hire young kids and it's going to fall apart in the next three or four years. And what's very depressing about Aussie is that it only worked, the scam only worked for a time because they were good at pretending that they were successful. They had some really good graphics and they had some, uh, you know, really, you know, Carlos Watson, like here, he's a you know, slick talking guy who's able to go on TV and, uh, you know, hype himself up, hype up his network. And it perplexes me why, I mean, I know why, but our media is controlled by a few people, whether it's Goldman Sachs or whether it's investors from, uh, you know, um, the Peretti group of investors or whoever it is. It is controlled by folks who want to make a profit and they get fooled by a few people with shiny, uh, you know, with shiny statistics, with a few shiny YouTube channels. And that's what decides what people consume. That's what decides who gets to create a newscast, who gets to create, who gets to have a newsroom, who gets to, you know, run, uh, you know, who gets to run uh, news organizations. They get to decide like what the ideology of the country is going to be. You know, yeah. and that's why we are where we are. And I think that you see Newsmax and you see all those uh, OAN and those places, the Ben Shapiro's of the world. They're not continuing because they're popular. I mean, they're popular now because they keep getting more and more and more right. money. It's not like they're profitable. And so, Ozzy, yes, it was like a nonpartisan scam. But the it's the same same thing. It's a bunch of billionaires and a bunch of hedge funds and a bunch of investors who pump money into these things, hope they make a profit, or don't care about a profit because they're ideologically driven. 
And so Ozzy just kind of tipped the iceberg. So it's interesting that you say this. And, and I think what was so jarring in, about this, this report was that, um, you know, like they're the fastest growing YouTube show. Okay. Just to put that in perspective, guys, I don't mean to like toot our own horn, but we got like 45,000 followers on YouTube in the first week and a half of our show. That would make us the fastest growing YouTube show because <laughs> compared to these numbers, I was like, what's fastest growing? You don't even have any likes. You don't have any, but, but all that being said, like that's not actually what journalism should be. I personally, I mean, even though their numbers were complete BS and, you know, they bought bots for Instagram and they weren't even smart enough to get likes and shares and all the stuff they were supposed to do. It, journalism should not be based on profit, number one, uh, because none of them are profitable, but also engagement because, you know, there's different types of journalism. If you want to have a debate on TV, I'm going to guess there's going to be a lot of engagement on that. But if you want to have an investigative report on, uh, I don't know, like a drone strike in Afghanistan, I'm going to guess like the commentary may not be as as uh, engaged as that. Right. You know, the hard stuff is not always the most engaging, but it also is super, super important. I mean, Julia, like we, this is this has been going on. All of us have kind of come a, come up through these years, but. Uh, now we're just looking at basically a graveyard of media companies and, of course, actual newsrooms. And we're left with, as Jordan said, the Ben Shapiros and right. the Joe Rogans. And these are the people who are dispersing information like uh, right. that ivermectin is, uh, you know, what we should be taking. All right. Well, I've been taking the horse pace for a while. And it's going great for me. <laughs> well, yeah, look at him. so healthy. Okay? <laughs> we look strong like an ox. Mm-hmm. Um, no worms in you. I don't. I don't have any intestine anymore. <laughs> strong like a horse, here. I guess, is what you would be. Strong um, like a horse. <laughs> strong like a horse. Um, yeah, I mean, look, media. Media is one of those things like education in this country, where we have this idea of this institution that is democratic and is totally insulated from the vagaries of uh, fortune, you know, inherited fortune and all that kind of stuff. Of course, it's not. It's totally, you know, comes from stems from um, elite people sharing their version of what they think the world should be. If you look back at these legacy media companies, it was true then, it's true now. It's wealthy white boys. That's who runs the media in this country. It's always been that way. So, you know, people talk, they think it's this huge conspiracy when you talk about media bias, but I always want to show them these statistics. It's like, look, women don't work in media nearly as much as men. Black people don't work in the media nearly, nearly as much as white people. And if you're talking about like the highest ranks of media, of course, it's all old white men. Um, so that that's who determines what you get to see. So there's been this sort of, um, you know, years and years long, decades long, really at this point, just sort of hand wringing at these big journalistic outlets about like, oh my God, like it's so horrible. Nobody reads anymore. Nobody picks up the newspaper anymore. Um, well, because it's shitty. That's why. So, I mean, <laughs> like, I'm not going to keep reading the New York times if every time I open it, they tell me, oh, progressives have fucked up again. They are, you know, not That's just even. scrapping their own bill, you know, like uh, their, their perspective. Um, you know, I think famously one of the New York times editors that recently left the paper said in a closed door meeting, look, you know, everything's up for debate, but like, we're capitalists. Like, that's obvious. We're capitalists. Like, this is an underlying assumption to all of the reporting. So why would I keep reading that? So that creates this sort of vacuum. And I think what is rushed into the vacuum is total chaos. Um, I don't know if it's going to be that way forever, but I think as of right now, we've had, we've had this sort of, um, 
democratization in some ways. And then we've also had um, billionaires and rich people, of course, try to game the new system and say, well, you know, if if we're going to have this system whereby likes and engagement and all this stuff is what determines who's popular, I'm going to start buying myself likes or I'm going to start buying myself thousands and thousands of dollars of ads for people to click on, you know, and I'm going to game the algorithm and all this other kind of stuff. So I think it's a complex, you know, it's this really complex topic when we're talking about media now and the future of media. Um, but I think one of the things we need to do is just shed our illusions about what media is or what it has been. Mm -hmm. So, um, the same way that we need to shed our illusions about, um, the democratic process in the U S we shouldn't go into every conversation with this big American exceptionalist assumption about how great we are. Um, we also need to go into the media conversation saying it was never that great. Like, what do we, what do we actually want? What do we want to build? But because it's kind of going to be from the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's a, I think there's a couple of and I totally agree with everything you said, Julia. I think there's, there's a couple of problems. There's deference to power. This idea that like people who are in charge uh, are trying to do the right thing and that they should not be questioned <laughs> until it's been proven that, until yeah. until they haven't until they've been proven wrong. You know, they should uh, because I look at the coverage of say like Ron DeSantis. You know, there was a New York Times article recently talking about why were things so bad with COVID in Florida, and the only thing they said about him was that he had opened he had tried to get people vaccinated. He opened a vaccine clinic, and if you followed the last year, he's like going door to door giving people COVID. Like, it's just like he, if he had like a, like a, like he had like a super soaker of COVID, he just sprayed on every single person he could. And he is trying to like kill people and no one's yeah. going to say, cause there's this deference to power that it just permeates. And I think right. it's one, it's because they, a lot of times, and I, you know, I did entertainment journalism for a lot of years. And I think that one thing that taught me is that people, when you spend enough time with the people you cover, you think you're one of them and yes. you think you are just as powerful. And a long time for the press they were pretty well paid. They got to sit in their literal like towers, of the New York times. And there was this element that like, Oh, I'm just like these, I'm just like these, uh, in, with, with entertainment. So I'm just like these celebrities. I get to go to the premiere party to them. They don't remember my name, but you know, I get to talk to them on the red carpet for a minute with the New York times. Oh, I get to, I get to text with the lawmaker. So I'm just like them. Why would I, why would I question them? So there's this deference to power. People think they're doing the right thing. And that also that they're one of them, you know, versus like, you're not, you're like, you're not close to Elon Musk. Elon Musk has like a right. hundred billion dollar billion dollars. You've got like, you can't pay your mortgage. You know, you, like yeah. rent is tough. And like, so we're so much closer to being destitute than we are these big, uh, powerful Very people. Awesome. But that doesn't exist in the minds of people who are reporting on them. Because right. otherwise, how could you possibly, you want to give yourself to peer because you have to report on them. Well, think, it's also, I mean, what you're talking about is also, um, you know, the proximity to power is, it's like a drug to people. And it is sure. sort of, um, I think... The same way that in order to move up in the corporate world, like say you go and work for McDonald's or Coca-Cola or whatever, um, you have to go along to get along. And if you want to keep going up the ladder and going up to that next step, you're not going to be the person that's like, hey, aren't we destroying the earth? Like, should we do something different? Right. Like, no, like you're not going to say that. And if you do, oh. out the door. So it's a self, you know, maintaining um, structure. And the same thing happens in journalism. You know, you have people who start to get a little bit of a following and, you know, if they go too off script, then suddenly, you know, they're totally crazy. Um, and they're sort of shunned from the media. So I think it like happens like that, like you don't even know, like one day they're just not called to go on the talk show anymore. Right. And yeah, like budget cuts happen and conveniently. People are like, insulated. I mean, look, I, I believe me, I think journalists should be well paid. You know, I think more people should be in journalism. I think it should be a well-paying job and I think totally. people should be, you know, able to do it. But it also like, when 
only a certain number of them get to do it. You know, they're paid super well and there's no consequences to them. You know, if you, the people who guys Punchbowl or Axios or all the, any of those like horrible websites, nothing's going to happen whether a Democrat or Republican is in charge. No matter what happens with, you know, uh, people who can go to community college or not, you know, not not go to debt or if someone's grandmother in Iowa can't pay for the drugs, the prescription medicine, that doesn't matter to them. I mean, maybe if their grandmother's in Iowa, but that's about it. You know, these things don't matter to them. They're insulated from the consequences. And so I think that they see it as like all it's all a parlor game. And that's why, you know, they're covering horse races. They're not covering like what does it actually mean that the earth is going to melt? You know, like in January, trillions, like two trillion dollars in student loans are going to start being owed again. You know, these things don't matter so much to people who are in charge. And, you know, I know that like editors and a lot of times reporters do care, but editors like it's their job. They need to even it out. They need to make sure that. Uh, it's, it's, you know, they seem nonpartisan, whereas like, I think a lot about when, and this, uh, everyone, you know, it's a goblin's lie, everyone compares everything to the Nazis, but like, at what point would the media say like, Hey, this is really bad. You know, like, no, you're, this is, this you know? is, I think this is ultimately it because even, I mean, this is not as popular, but, uh, there are reporters out there who, they're, they're also in this, this Twitter universe where they echo each other and they protect yeah. each other. And the reality is, is very few reporters, very few reporters today actually have the reporting skills that you're supposed to learn. And, and I don't mean like, like for instance, fact-checking. I'm shocked by how little fact-checking exists. I had a hit piece on me um, in Politico a few years ago. We found 48 factual errors, like errors, errors. We went back to them and said, please correct them. They said, when uh, we don't correct them, you'll have to file a lawsuit against us, and that's after it's been published. And I said, well, don't you have fact-checkers? They said, no, we don't have fact-checkers at Politico. Said, I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah, you don't have fact-checkers at Politico? yeah. yeah. I've, I've never worked with a fact checker in, in my life, uh, to, except actually for like a kids magazine I worked for. So, which is strange. Um, was it Scholastic? Um, no, it wasn't Scholastic, but it was. It was. That was. I was, was like, really? Okay. Um, you wanted to know the right time of SpongeBob was there? And cool. Um, a while ago, but um, but it, yeah, it's, it's. I mean, Rolling Stone has a fact checker because sure. they were forced to after a very embarrassing situation. But right. even um, just one point. One point to this. I mean, Wayne Barrett was my my mentor, and I remember him saying like there's a real problem in that it's not that people aren't, you know, they're going to J school and they're spending a fortune if they can afford it. Um, it's not that they're not going to J school or they're not getting, you know, the proper teaching you learn on the job. And if you're not covering on the ground, like if you're not doing actual investigative reporting, you don't know how investigative reporting works. If you're not doing mm -hmm. actual state house reporting, you don't understand how the levers of power work. If you're just doing like, like, you know, the, 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 you scratch my back, I scratch your back, press release, pitch kind of thing. That is power. You are part of the mechanisms of power. You right. know, I can only use my experience, but with that one piece, I knew that came from a memo from somebody because thankfully there was another reporter who told me I was pitched that memo and I knew you and I knew that this stuff was false. But like, think, but that's how it works. I think it's also a question of what are the rewards, right? Like if, if there yes. who are the places, what are the websites that are paying people to write and uh, long, interesting, thoughtful pieces that call truth to power versus what are the websites that have lots totally. of, who are sponsored by Facebook, who are sponsored by Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, who have the morning newsletters sponsored by like people who every day like poison children uh, and, you know, right. bomb, yeah. bomb people in Kabul. Like they are the ones that put all this money into these, uh, these news outlets that want this sort of turn it, turn it, turn it, who said, he said, she said type deal. And so like, honestly, if you're coming out of school and you're like, Hey, I want to like have, uh, I don't know, like I want to live in an apartment and have clean drinking water and <laughs> have a life. Like the incentive is not to, you, you, you don't get money. There's no money to start your own thing. Right. Like I started a right. newsletter, like, 
it's still not making me really any money, but like it's because I have other jobs, right? I couldn't right. just do it because I wanted to start on my own. And so like, unless you, uh, once in a, once in a lifetime, you have someone that can like start a truth to power magazine and like have it actually work out or, you know, a website that actually works out that gets a lot of money. And that's like, cause the foundation provides it, you know, there's no yeah, real right. incentive otherwise. Yeah. I mean, again, you know? like to go back to this being profit driven, like I did a little bit of journalism here and there, there was a time I wrote this really long piece about, um, the Koch brothers funding opposition to public transit. And it took me like over a month to write it, you know, like it was so much research. And I think I made like $400 on it. And like, you know, at that point I was like, okay, I can't do journalism. Like I can't, because if I want to like keep doing this and I want to do it at a sustainable rate, I have to go, you know, like I knew someone who was working at bustle and they had to write like five articles a day or something insane. And they had like a paycheck, but I was like, well, I don't want to write that kind of article. I want to write a, you know, 4,000 word uh, piece about the Koch brothers, uh, Americans for Prosperity, killing the tram line in fucking Nashville or whatever, you know, like uh, that is just, there's no incentive to do it. There's no incentive you know, to do it. And then even then it's you can't still might get it killed. Like, you know where what most web traffic and most web advertising comes from? What? Google and Facebook. Um so, so yeah, like yeah. why would you why would the algorithm reward that? There's a if you go to there's a there's a Twitter page called like Facebook Top Ten, I think it is. Every single day yeah. it tells you like where yeah, the most right. uh yeah, the top Facebook posts are. And it's like Dan there's Bongino. no way Ben Shapiro <laughs> and Dan Bongino are this popular. Like they are if you were at a party, no matter who you were with, and like they were in the room, yeah, they would be the people in the corner either like being chastised or fuming because no one wants to talk to them. Uh they are not the most popular people in America naturally. And but every single day they are um, they are, they have like three or four of the most popular posts. And so, you know, it's, I start sounding like conspiracy theories, like Facebook's doing it and Raytheon's doing it and Lockheed Martin's doing it and, and Punchbowl News is doing it, well, but like, it's, cool it's an ecosystem. It's an ecosystem yeah. that like rewards all these things. And like, if you're a journalist who just wants to start out and do like good stuff, then like, there's no place to really do it and right. like have a future. And who wants to fund that? I mean, like right. who wants to fund something that's actually challenging to power? It's a sort of, um, it's it contradicts itself, right? Like you're going to ask rich people for money to tell them they're bad. Like <laughs> that's not what they yeah. want. That's it's time immemorial. They want you in, to come in and do what they it. say to do. In a way I admire OZ because at least they were tricking rich people out of their money and getting nothing out of it. Like, yeah. Wait, are they the same ones who did the Aussie fest thing? Is that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I was, I, it was like a con Okay. So, so before we wrap, I'm sorry, guys, we're going over, but, um, I used to host a show on Sirius XM and this is in 2016 and I had, I have no problem, uh, ripping these people because I found out that they've done it. Sam Cedar had the same experience with these two people or one of the people I had, um, two co-owners of my show, right. There were two old men, uh, late sixties, early seventies, uh, white men, of course, that had a long legacy in, uh, in radio in particular. I made a lot of thoughts on my radio skills. Um, even though at that time I was on the highest weight rated segment on cable news uh, every week. So, mm -hmm. so that's, that goes back to the, the Dan Bongino, Ben Shapiro point, like on cable news, you can see it down to like the millisecond, like how you're doing. Like you can see who's, and there's, and, 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 you know, Roger Ailes was brilliant in that sense that he was like, Oh, turns out people like to watch hot women on TV. <laughs> So they he just loaded them up with hot women. And oh, it turns out like if you show their legs, like a, an old guy will watch you more. Um, what yeah. happened to Megyn so, Kelly? What happened to her when she got off Fox News? 
Yeah. Didn't she, she have a redemption tour and then like a talk a talk she show? Went right. She went full right. I was at NBC no, when she was but there. she didn't, she didn't, she, she tried to go left yeah. wing and then, or no, she tried to go a little bit softer and she had a talk show and then her talk show got canceled because she said Santa is white. I think that's what she, happened. Isn't was, that, wasn't that her? It was, it was she Halloween. was like, Santa can be black or something. <laughs> she's had a lot of like weird, yeah. yeah. But she does, a, she has a show now, a podcast and she's gone like full right in a way that I'm like, that's not the Megyn Kelly I knew. What a hill to die on. Yeah. Santa's way. But she's so much money Santa's that I'm like, why Megan. do you even need to do it? Why do you even need to do <laughs> it? It's not just exactly just <laughs> retire so so this guy um steven who i was partners with was obsessed with ozzy he was obsessed with my show being like the millennial radio show on sirius xm because you know every millennial listens to sirius xm and so he was like you have to go to Aussie Fest. You have to have all the Aussie reporters on. That's what the millennials are reading. Then I'm like, oh, yeah. I don't know one effing person. I'm a millennial, dude. I'm a millennial. I have millennial friends. Nobody is sharing Aussie. And that was the red flag. He was, yeah, I mean, he that's definitely a thing for sure. I really do like the grift. Like, I, I think it's bad that they, like, I wish they'd done more with it. I wish they had, like, I wish the guys from, like, I don't know, like some leftist podcast or whatever, you, I wish, Mickey, I wish you had been running the programming at, Ozzy and ripping people off. Yeah. We had a great time doing that. Just taking the money and like mm-hmm. talking about leftist politics and taking it somewhere else. I just feel like so guilty. Just like I, I have to like make sure that Missed I opportunities. I make make sure that I get every newsletter out on time for my like for my few paid subscribers. Like I just I'm too guilty, too guilt ridden to do what Ozzy did. And I hate myself. Jordan, you're a human. <laughs> Julia, you're a human. Yeah, well, I mean, this is this is just capitalism writ large, uh, writ small. I mean, it's all it's all you know. We feel too bad. That's why we don't go work for Heinz and Coca Cola. We yeah. can make a good money good money working there. Oh yeah, you know, I can't work there. Like, come on. Yeah. It's. Anyways, guys are great. Appreciate you. Drink your 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 Coca Cola. Speaking of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Drink it. Just you know, it's, just, it's impossible to avoid that stuff, right? This is like, now. Oh, well, yeah. now you're sponsored by them because I put the brand on your show. So oh, maybe go get your check, them. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, just invoice them. They'll probably send you. <laughs> Julia, can you do that for me? It'd be a really funny follow up. Next time you're on, I'll be like, "Has has Coca Cola paid us our invoice yet?" Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, guys. Thanks for joining joining us, uh, Jordan Zacker and Julia Doubleday. Uh, make sure to ch- tune in on Friday. Let's see. I have the guests here listed. I have to do this more often. Margaret Rolecki uh, is on. I hope I said her name right. She is the author of the USA's uh, gun buying spree. And then we have Lauren Packard on, who's the executive director of Healthcare Voter. And Lauren Ashcraft and Francesca Fiorentini are going to be on for our panel. That is Fem Friday. Go check it out. Julia, Jordan, love you. Great show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nomi. Thank you to everybody for joining us today. And make sure to check out our new show. It's a live show on Rockfin, rockfin.com slash Nomi Key. And if you are not already, join us on Patreon where you get all of our content. You get, you know, all of our interviews broken up into pieces. Go to patreon.com slash Nomi Key. Excuse me, patreon.com slash The Nomi Key Show. It's going to be down there. You'll see it. And that is how we support our show. We've had a big conversation about media. It really is important. The algorithms are working against us. They're definitely working against women. I can tell you that. 
Um, so if you can join us on either of those platforms or both, if you have in your heart, you get different types of content. I know people have been asking, uh, we're diversifying. I think that's the way that they say it. So you'll get exclusive content on both platforms and, of course, the uh, show in audio form on Patreon in several different formats. All right, Friday. We have a great show on Friday for Fem Friday. We have Margaret Rolecki, who is the author of the article, The USA's Gun Buying Spree. Fascinating. And Lauren Packard's on to talk about healthcare. She is the executive director of Healthcare Voter. And then after that, we have Lauren Ashcraft and Francesca Fiorentini on for our panel. And I'm sure we're going to have a lot to discuss because the vote is tomorrow. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. All right. We will see you on Friday. In the meantime, stay in solidarity. The no show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed. Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. continues. The No Miki Show.